1: Knockback, the retro and nostalgia podcast, is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to patreon.com slash laststandmedia. (music) Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined, as always, by my brother, Dagan Mithrandir Moriarty. Dagan, thank you for joining me today. How are you? Old gray beard. Yes. Look at that. Say that? Yes. Yeah gibbets and
2: crows <laughs> <laughs> don't wait to, to say that for a while haven't you?
1: <laughs> I had to get that out yeah so what's what's going on how's life
2: everything's okay yeah, yeah just chilling here it is on a Friday got the movie playing silently to my right oh really that's that. nice let's hope that's we finish nice. before the movie finishes because when the movie finishes then we the audio goes back on like it did oh last time. okay so we yeah have to... well
1: it won't be done for seven hours so don't worry about it. <laughs> that's true Man, That's when I put this true. thing on, when you told me the runtime was, I was like, oh, my God, I know. I, I, I had to just sit down. And be, I literally I sat down with Micah at five, a little after five. OK, and I'm like, we won't be done with this until after 10. And then we we got through <laughs> the first disc and then we ate dinner and then we got through it, you know, 10, 1030 10 or 1045. So it's
2: an all night affair. That was your whole evening. Shit.
1: We got it. But it's about really that. good. Oh, I'm excited. I'm excited about it. But how's life doing? over there? And oh, I mean, I'm good. I'm yeah. fine. Everything's fine. Yeah. You'll notice that I so I finally had the blinds guy come over today. Yeah. Promising for a long time that I was going to get this done. Okay. And uh so he put up the the blinds, like the accordion blinds, which I have all over my house, but he put on the ones that I have in my bedroom, which are like just totally blackout. And I'm I'm ecstatic about it. That's nice.
2: Good blinds, tough, pricey
1: blinds. Definitely, dude. I paid a... I got six accordion blinds because he replaced... I have four windows in my living room and we have also put the blackout ones on those just because the glare is so bad on the TV sometimes. And we would like to have the option to not... You know, like when there's a glare in your TV and then you can't stop staring at what's in the glare? Oh, So you actually have a good me. picture, but then like you just keep... And there's... Like, I always see the house like behind us. You know, so... <laughs> so that really bothers me. So, dude, that was all his labor and and the blinds, 850 bucks. So... <sighs> But it had to be done. It had to be done. You gotta and do. It. It's a must. I looked up how much these things actually cost. He actually gave me a pretty nice deal. I actually okay. appreciated it. But he's a friend of Uncle Mike's actually. Oh, nice. Everybody's a friend of Uncle Mike's. I know, he's like the mayor. He's been down here only for what, five years? He's already like the mayor of, That's uh, so cr- of Chesterfield County. But, so Uncle Mike. You but know? um it's how we roll. Everything everything's good, dude. Everything's fine. Good. Got a lot of games to play, a lot of things to do this summer, which is catching up on spoiler casts and review discussions. So I'm trying to I got to replay Resident Evil at some point. We're going to do one on Returnal and okay. all the rest. So there's just there's just, you know, Ratchet and a bunch of other things. So just a lot of games to play. Scarlet yeah. Nexus, of course, another one. So, um, yeah, I'm a, just, I got to really sit in and start playing. Yeah. And uh, it'll be fun. That we'll sounds fun. It is nice. It's yeah, nice, that but it's fun. But it's it's not as stressful as it used to be at IGN or even at kind of funny in the sense that we had we used to get games early. And so that would compel you to hit the embargo and i fucking hated that shit like it's really nice (laughs) that i just that i just buy video games with everyone else now i don't deal with pr at all there you go and i buy them when everyone else gets them and then we kind of enjoy them at the same pace so it's a level playing field and we just grow and grow and grow no matter that what so i knew that my access had nothing to do with why people enjoyed the content
2: and they were able to
1: make that choice The, the proof's in the pudding Indeed, it is. I like it. I like you. I like your strats. I like your strats, my friend. Thank you. Appreciate that. Now, Dagan, it's time to get into the topic in in earnest, mm. the Return of the King. The third film, 2003, four and a half hours long, the extended edition. I watched it in ultra 4K on my PlayStation 5. Nice. And I got to say, uh, you know, I'm excited to talk to you about this. I'm excited for multiple reasons. Number one, it's going to be fun to go through everything in the movie. There's a lot. And then it's also going to be fun to talk about because I don't really have any insight or I don't because I barely remember anything about what wasn't in this movie because I know that there's a lot of or a few things in particular that's not covered in the movie properly, I think, according to a lot of people. And then also I want to talk about and I know, you know, we got a lot of messages about how Tolkien was anti allegory. And yet I want to talk about the possible allegories in the in the film as well. Because it's fun, and that's what art is all about. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I also don't really believe him. I was reading some of this stuff. I'm like, I don't know if I really believe you. He's a little,
2: you know, he seems a little evasive when he talks about that. So we got to get into that.
1: Yeah, we'll get into that. It is. But let's just start 40,000 feet. What did you think of the film Return of the King?
2: You know what, dude? I forgot. I knew I really enjoyed this movie, the entire trilogy, obviously. This is the last one we're talking about. And I enjoyed the whole kit and caboodle, but I forgot how good this movie was. And I don't remember the last time I've seen the extended edition being, what, 44 hours and 23 minutes and change or whatever. But I have to say, going through it now again and it being fresh in my mind, I can't think of a better example of a successfully done film of this length. I mean, for me, I really found it really to be even more enjoyable than I initially remembered. Emotional, great characters, great acting, great action. I found it to be beautiful in the visuals and every, pretty much every sense of the word. Very few things that I felt were egregious in any way. And for a four hour plus film, really masterful pacing, I found. you know, I found it really to be engaging and entertaining from the first minutes all the way through To, you know, those last minutes inside that fourth hour, I really was engrossed and I was pleasantly surprised. And I think it makes the two towers pale in comparison. And I didn't remember that. I didn't remember feeling that way about this movie, but it's really, I think it's a really, really strong undertaking. I think when you have such a brilliant book and, you know, sort of the epic ending of one of the epic trilogies of all time, like it's a pretty hard act to follow the novel. And man, I, I just really, really enjoyed it. Like, I'm, I'm so enthusiastic about it right now, that Kyle, that like, I feel like I could go in and do it again.
1: And that takes stamina. This is a yeah, long movie. Well, you're a man known for his stamina. <laughs> now, I, I got to say, I agree with you. I, I don't. So I was trying to think about this and I don't know for sure. I could have maybe only seen Return of the King once, which would be in the theater. So okay. If that's true, and I think it is, and it's kind of you know, it's, it's getting hard to remember. Like it is, it really is. Like I don't know why. It's two thousand three. I almost, I almost took it for granted at some point where it's like, oh, I remember everything. You don't. I remember fucking anything. So two, that, if that's true, two thousand three, the end of two thousand three. So it's been a while. It's been what eighteen years, and. I remembered liking the two towers more. And I remembered when I read the trilogy, when I was young in high school, I, or even whenever it was, I think it was in high school, which we discussed in a previous episode that I remember that being my favorite book as well. So I was a little bit surprised when the film came around and I was like, wow, this is kind of, in my opinion, a step, a really a pretty marked step down from fellowship. And what was nice was I agree. I think return of the King is the, maybe the best of the three. And I agree. I do like the pacing. I know we'll we'll talk about the endings and and all that and the and a lot of the Frodo and built you know Frodo and Sam stuff, but I do like that it takes its time to in the extended edition to kind of tend to many things. And I know that purists, Tolkien purists, have a problem with the way some of the stuff was dealt with and. I think some of it will come through with in our discussions with about Saruman sure, and some of the ways, definitely. you know, about Sam and Frodo's relationship, I think is another thing. Even the, the, the fate of the ring uh, itself and how that happens. But I, from a, what I will just consider myself a layman because I'm not a Tolkien. I, la- I love Tolkien, but it's not like I'm like reading his books and I've never read any of the expense, you know, the, the Silmarillion or any of that other sure, stuff. Sure. So I really have no. I was reading the Lord of the Rings Wikipedia last night, like a nerd, specifically because I was interested in orc culture and what we'll it's talk good about that stuff. Yeah, you can and learn. so you can you can learn. And I always loved. I think it was something awful the website that used to put up like, here's a Wikipedia article for you know, Sharon the Moon of Pluto, and it's two thousand words. Reverend, it's like here is the Wikipedia article for Endor, and it's like. 50 fifty thousand words a thesis yeah, yeah. like it's so funny it's so good like and they would take the real things and like how like little the wikipedia was and then like the fake shit <laughs> you know it'd be like ai and then it would be like terminator 2 <laughs> and like put put is isn't that crazy to think like there's an Brilliant. expert
2: for out there for every single thing even a fictional planet in a fictional science fiction series you know what i mean like there's somebody who's really yeah, enthusiastic wild. about something You know, nothing is uncovered. There's somebody out there for everything. That's weird.
1: So uh, it is weird. And it's great. That's that's what my favorite part about podcasts is just like when I talk about the mathematician about geometry today, I'm like, okay. so (laughs) I I do dig that they explore. They take their time. It seems excessive and gratuitous, and yet you can't deny the results, both at the box office. This is an Oscar nominated fest of a movie. And. And I also just dig the performances. So I, I found the entire thing very charming. And I'll also say this. A lot of people were kind of talking about how I, I took umbrage with the the tech and kind of the way a lot of the CG holds up from Two Towers. But I feel like it's much less egregious in this movie, yes. particularly because I don't think that they put themselves in positions often to have like the, tr- the you know, the the hobbits with the tree shit where it's like it looks like. Jerry and Elaine in a car in Seinfeld are like so fake. You know what I'm <laughs> talking a about. Great
2: example.
1: It looks ridiculous. Like where there's no the shadows are wrong and everything. So right. So I dig that they kind of got away from that, and yet I also kind of got sucked into some of what I was realizing, having watched the movies in such quick succession. All of the tricks that they do to make sure that the, the shots come off right. Tons of close-ups, lots of shot changing and really obscure and weird shots, stunt doubles that are a little, there's a scene where I think uh, it's actually fucking hysterical. There's a scene where Gandalf picks up Mary and puts him on the horse. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's hysterical. If you go watch it, it's like him picking up a little person or a stunt double, I (laughs) guess, you know, like whatever it is, it's just awesome. (laughs) And so there's, but if you can get over, see, that's the thing that's so surprising to me about watching these in succession taken is, for all of the budget and for how well the acting is and for how good it looks, there's still, it's still a relic of its age. And you almost wish, God, I can't believe I'm even saying this, that this would get a George Lucas like special edition where they can really go in and fix that. And I was often one, I was kind of stuck wondering like, why don't they, or can't they do that? What's, what is it about a film? That's, I guess like it's, it's, it's this stuck in, An amber kind of thing but what's stopping you from making it better going back over and over again even doing it and would that be like sacrilegious to people i think it would be but i just couldn't help but think of like all the things they could have probably fixed today yeah
2: i think you're absolutely right i think sacrilege is the right word too because and not just for the viewers i think maybe considered maybe sacrilegious or sacred ground for the filmmakers as well you know or just film in general where you just like don't go back and redo Citizen Kane type of thing. You know, even though you could do it better now type of thing. But being so special effects heavy, specifically, I understand what you're saying. You know, it's just, uh, it's being as, you know, its age, nearly 20 years old, You have something that's just really beholden to its time. And again, we talk about the rapid evolution of visual technology and visual effects and how spoiled we are and how spoiled our eyes are and how perceptive we are because of that. Like the average viewer really has a great eye for it now with the technology, you know, with everything we're beholden to in TV and film. So, but it is an interesting question. And, you know, also like very ambitious. Like this movie is very ambitious, it doesn't stray away from trying to show things in a smaller way if it needs to be grand you know when they're fighting those you know um men from the east on those all offense or whatever like you know that's an epic set piece battle they're not trying to shy away or just show medium shots or whatever There, they're going all in so by doing that you take a risk and by you know the weta the wettas of the world and all that kind of stuff like these visual effects houses multi-million dollar companies advertising all that like You're kind of putting yourself on the line, you know, when you do something like that, because you know it's going to be sort of put under the microscope, just another decade, you know, ahead of it, you know, type of thing. So even the Weta Digital's and stuff, they're not Pixar's and everything, they're not immune to that. And it's an it's such an interesting part of the conversation. But I agree with you; it's much less egregious than even the Two Towers, and then especially odd when you think about that these films are all made generally at the same time, ish. Right. Right. So. that I can't get
1: away from that I can't get away from which is them having filmed it all at once which I still love I love that idea I think it's awesome it's a great idea sticks them in place like we were saying I think during the two towers conversation where they're kind of dedicated to these things and yet and this I was I remarked this to Micah because I was criticizing some things that then I'm like who I said who the fuck am I because we were talking about with the elephant creatures I think there's a, a scene with I don't know who it was. I guess it's Lego Loss or whatever taking down one of them, and it was just like this fifteen second sequence. Yes, and I was like, that was literally someone's eighteen months of their life. Absolutely, like, you know. And I was that's like, like they just stared at this thing over and over and over again, and then I'm sitting. It happens, and it's cool, and everyone thinks it's great. And then I'm sitting here, you know, it's eighteen years later, being like, eh?
2: Can you imagine? Yeah. I know. Pass after pass, render after render, daily after daily, crit after crit. But you know what? I'm impressed because most people don't think like that, that aren't involved in animation or visual effects or that sort of, you know, those really like essential jobs in feature film that are very, very time consuming, you know, and really could, yeah, exactly. Like you're living, there's a, there's a person or people, a team living inside of that minute for like you said, like a year and a half, you know, and just so Legolas could have his shadow of the Colossus Yeah, just his moment, moment, you know?
1: So it can be like thrown away by me in a podcast. <laughs> you know? so. They're all right though. They make good money, those guys. and girls. Yeah, they certainly do. They all start. right, so, Dig, this is a complicated thing to talk about. Okay. This this movie. I think it's four and a half, you know, like we said, four and a half hours long, tons of topics. Biggie. Got a lot of inquiries from the audience. Of course, you can support us over on Patreon, patreon.com slash media Get early ad free access and the ability to vote on topics and the ability to submit your inquiries. Inquiries. We appreciate all of that. Tons of really good stuff here that I want to get into. But before we get into any of that, I kind of want to start at the very beginning. Yeah. The opening scene with Smeagol is awesome. And I'm wondering what you make of that scene. And I I love the iconography doubling down on the iconography of the power of the ring by immediately showing you this horrifying event that took this, this man into its grasp. And um, he's, there's this awesome quote when it's like, when we forget the taste of bread, the sound of trees and he's talking about all the things that, as time had went on from that moment of getting in the, the trance of the ring, nothing was good enough. Yes. And, and everything ended up revolving around it and never satiating That's it awesome. like a drug addiction. I think it's, it's super cool. So I'm just curious what you think about the way the movie starts. Cause I actually don't, I, I was, t- I, I, I actually did remember this as I recall, maybe it's a false memory, but remembering that the movie actually starts on a little bit of a, like a, a heady trip. Yeah. The
2: Gollum or- origin story. You know what, Kyle? Before right. I forget, and I meant to do this on the Two Towers podcast, I have my ring. Can you guys see oh. it? Oh. Now, this is Grandpa's horse head ring.
1: Oh, of course. You
2: know it very well. Yeah. Our Grandpa, Alessandro Ruggiero, wore this gold horse head ring up his ass. No, that's Pul- that's for the Pulp <laughs> fiction. He didn't wear it up his ass. It has a little diamond eye. I like to think it's real. And it's a little heirloom, a little keepsake. I have my, I think I could get it over this whole thing. Yeah, just barely. It's going to go up my nose for a second. There we go. There we go. I have it from my, our quest, our journey. But now it's going to be over the wire. Is that going to bother my you? One ring. Oh, is it over the wire?
1: You didn't think this through.
2: That's all right. Yeah, it doesn't bother me. I'm not going to leave it okay. the the time.
1: Okay. Don't tell them. Fair enough. I'm Fair not going to
2: take it all the way to Matthew.
1: Well, I appreciate it. Yeah, don't, well, we don't want to destroy it. No. Grandpa wouldn't Grandpa wouldn't like that. My God, this is Sorry, a So... Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about the the origin story and how that kind of sets the cadence for the movie. Because I, I, I I don't know. I just was really quite drawn into it from, from the beginning. I thought it was a really nice way to, I forgot. I I know that's the story, but yeah, 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 no,
2: I mean, I completely forgot about it. So it was a treat again. I haven't seen this movie in quite some time. And, uh, I have to say Smeagol, you know, proper Smeagol, OG Smeagol might be scarier than Gollum. I think he's, he's pretty creepy
1: and how his voice hasn't changed really is is, (laughs) that's dope i mean that's so good i don't know if that was in the book described that way or if that was a a creative decision but i like that decision that like it's it's a little unnerving because you had assumed everything about him had changed but really his whole intonation and shit hadn't changed at all
2: it it does make it creepy you're right to have that touchstone back like because the physical evolution or de-evolution whatever you want to say is is unnerving you know but yeah, I really enjoy having the Gollum backstory in there. I should know this already, but is he a hobbit? Is he not a hobbit? I don't know. Is he some sort of ancient type of hobbit before they evolved into hobbits proper? I don't know. You know, I'm not here to say. But yeah, I love the little origin story. I love the fact that it seems like. That character already has issues. You know, like there's obviously something going on there with the relationship with the characters. He's already a little underhanded. And it makes me realize like the ring in this sort of ghostly, mysterious way, like seems to find like the most corruptible, right? It seems to almost like, I don't know, it seems to almost like a parasite, like it needs to find a home, it needs to find a host. And it's drawn to, that type of character and that type of character is drawn to it. So the really cool, mysterious thing going on, you, you realize this has been going on for centuries, this ring, this ancient ring, this weapon changing hands. And just like you said, like almost like a drug, like having such an enormous power over somebody, having this thing, you know, basically being a reason for becoming a reason for living, like nothing else even matters to its dependent and that it has its hooks in Gollum so early and just you know what it's responsible for with his physical decay and his emotional decay and that he just can't bear existing without this thing. And I love going all the way back to seeing like, we see its backstory with the original war and Elrond and Isildur and everything, but now we see it fall into Smeagol and Deagle's hands and sort of how it ended up. You know, Then we could ascertain how it ended up, of course, with Bilbo and The Hobbit. Super cool. Uh,
1: I just love the... There's some cool iconography, actually. I noticed in the beginning, too, that the I don't know if this is maybe me reading into it too much, but the ring being found in the water is so cool, like how this ring just pops up and people see it and the fish takes them to it in this in this case. And there's a draw to it. But I, I, there's this great shot of it once it's in, I think, on the ground and it's just totally clean. The ring is just totally cleaned up. And it, it, as if it was some mystical or sinister so cool. force around it. And also we, we had to we had discussed from the very beginning in fellowship, how the, the, the vacillating size of the ring, I think is really creepy too. And they do that again in this movie, which up to the very end when they destroy it, which I love too, because obviously it was worn by various, various people that wouldn't have had the same ring size. So sure. I, sure. I, I like, I just like the cadence. It's it's, it's starts out very dark, it almost feels like if you were and I don't know where the 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 way this lines up in the books but if you were to just write this as th- a one long story split into three parts you would have almost wanted that to be the end of the second movie but I like the, that it that it like where it's it gives you a little it's almost like a Luke Skywalker on the cliff kind of situation but I dig it and it gives it gives us insight into Smeagol and
0: When you Angie that download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com.
1: And actually, I wanted to bring in this inquiry from Andy Gennaro. Yo, Andy. French much? He (laughs) he wrote in and said, hello, Super Moriarty bros. So when is uh, Gollum and Smeagol going to get his due? Without him, Frodo walks right past Sam while wearing the ring and all hope is lost. It was Gollum's actions that led to the destruction of the ring. Frodo ultimately succumbed to the ring's power, and he had to have his finger bitten off to relinquish it. Oh. I have said my piece. What say you? So I wanted to bring that up. I mean, we might as well talk about him immediately, even though it snaps to the end. Sure. And, and obviously, Gollum plays a, a big part in this film as well in the, just the journey through Mordor. But does he get his due? I, I, almost, I almost feel like Sam was right about him the entire time but it almost you know what it feels like i'm not trying to get like too religious or anything but the idea that jesus had to have been killed in order to fulfill the prophecy Mm. right Mm -hmm. it's like a very similar thing where it's like well i don't know what would what needed to have happened to have gotten us into the sequence of events in which the ring falls but the only thing I could think of was like Frodo, man, like you were just right there and you lost a finger really for no reason. And you have to look at that for the rest of your life and be oh. like, I could have just dropped this motherfucker right in the, in, the, in the lava and I'd still have my finger and nothing else would have been different. But nonetheless, do you feel like he gets his due? I mean, how do you feel about that character? I, I was really drawn to the fact, I guess, because I didn't remember that. He really is. He is the antagonist, like he is one of the antagonists. And it, he doesn't t- he he takes a heel turn. It's not. It's not what you probably would have expected. You expected some sort of redemptive arc, but it never actually happens. Yeah, true. Right? So
2: Very true. That's a great point about the redemptive arc. You're almost, even though Gollum's sort of an a-hole, you are rooting for him. You're, you're kind of rooting for him to straighten it out. You know he's being tortured by this little tiny trinket, you know, and it's so tragic. Well, let's work backwards, right? We okay. know Sam and Frodo needed a guide. Right. That was the practicality of the situation. They needed someone who was familiar with the lands of Mordor because he had been a prisoner there. He had slunk around there, but he, he knew the place. And that's the way he operates, too. Like he always knows the secret passages and the secret ways and everything staying out of harm's way and, you know, being a little creep. So they really needed him as a guide. Right. I love his ending. I love the irony of the ending that he gets what he wants as he's dying. I mean, that's the utter, when you're writing a story, I mean, what could be more utterly tragic? It's like he gets the ring, he's smiling in those last moments as he's dissolving in the lava. You know, super cool payoff, I think. But also with Gollum, I realized too, like, I guess more so in The Two Towers, it was interesting to see that he was, his dark side and his good side were struggling, Like there was some sort of um, some sort of struggle going on in his psyche, a bipolar sort of thing. Where and you know it compelled the audience, I think, at least for me, like to feel sympathy for him a little bit because you knew he was being corrupted by this thing that he couldn't live without. This drug, this trinket, this 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 enormous power that could give him an easier life, let's say, and you know his whatever inherent goodness, you know that he that he had pre corrupt you know during the smeagol era let's say then in the second movie what i love seeing is that he's already pretty far gone like he's already committed to betraying sam and frodo and he just wants the ring by any means necessary and he's playing the game and you see the cogs going on you see the scheming you know you see his insidious nature where it's not just you know the physicality of slinking in the shadows and dropping into the swamp and swimming it's and the claws and all that kind of shit it's like Also, like his cunning, you know, that he's pitting Sam against Frodo and he knows exactly the two, you know, he knows the two types. He knows that Frodo is under a very similar thrall with the ring, so he could play Frodo against Sam, who he knows is going to be hard to beat because Sam is so true of heart. You know, you have the Gollums and let's say the Baromirs and everything. I'm not pitting, I'm not putting those two characters together, but you have the Corruptible versus the Galadriels and the Faramirs and the Sams, which are like, you know they're beyond the corruption of the ring just because of the fabric of who those characters are. So, and I love Gollum being the you know the one end of the spe- of the spectrum for that. And I just love the animators slash Andy Circus, the direction Peter Jackson, everybody involved in like Gollum's performance in this movie. I think really holds up. You know, not just the the CGI modeling and the translucent skin and all the visual stuff, but just. The acting choices, you know, the very subtle eye darts and the and the you know the sly Mel, smile. Mel Gibson
1: eye darts. <laughs> 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 the Mel Gibson. <laughs> Why
2: is there not a meme of that? I don't. Know. <laughs> you know, not to go off on a tangent, but there really should be a meme of
1: that. Sorry so to interrupt you, yeah.
2: whoever's whoever's listening out there. We need the Mel Gibson eye dart meme. But I'm trying to think of the best movie for that. I guess it would be Braveheart,
1: right? Well, I think Signs was a good one for the eye dart, I think. Signs
2: was a great one for that. Yeah. And The Patriot.
1: Yeah, The Patriot, of course.
2: So either sure. of those three movies totally excited. I don't know
1: how we got – I'm sorry I interrupted you. I totally No, that's okay. But
2: I'm just saying like the performances and just the the subtlety, you know, that was really showed a lot of discipline. I, lo- I love a subtle acting performance. That's probably the animator in me. But, you know, just a sly smile and the eye dart and and trying to cover up that he's happy that he's sending him into Shelob's lair and stuff like that, like – you know, for me, like I was just really dishing on Gollum's performance in this, and really satisfied to see that it holds up. You know, that sort of thing. I think animation, specifically, if you put the visual components aside, just the performances and the acting—that's something so nice about animation because that that that's something that holds up better through the years and through the eras than whatever visual technology the performances you know tied to or beholden to.
1: Well, it's funny you say that because I know a lot of people think that and we'll talk about Sam and Frodo themselves but that that whole arc is more it's too long and that they could have cut that a lot out and and all of that and i at the same time i feel like and i don't know i guess you maybe i'm just not remembering it right but i just feel like gollum is just in in this less it just feels like he's less up front there just seems to be much more going on so we're not so focused on his foibles Sure, as a character, but also as maybe the way he doesn't hold up as well, like Mordor is darker, they're in caves and there's no light sources and it's easier to get that CG in. And so he fits a little bit more broadly into what's going on in this world. And so there's a lot to to that, that I that because he's a character that when I read The Hobbit and the trilogy, I didn't I didn't see him as annoying as they ended up making him in my mind, to me, I don't know if it was like a move for like a toy or to make him like a little more childlike. He's obviously simple. I mean, they, they, I think they describe him as such like kind of mentally deficient in the books. Yeah. I think you're right. I don't know. I don't know if that, that comes through where I just feel like he's, he's bordering for me on, on being annoying. And I do remember as a kid watching, you know, and being introduced to the movies with dad, as we go to see them, it just kind of, Remarking that I didn't see everything the way that it's being brought to bear in the films, and I think he was one of those characters. But obviously, he's a celebrate. I mean, Andy circus's performance is celebrated, and I think it's really good too. I just think that this is such a an ensemble that it's easy not to get focused to focus on in on anyone, which is nice.
2: That's a good point too. That's yeah. a great point. Yeah, I mean, one actor who is better than the next. I mean, yeah, we talked about that with Two Towers. Like they're all. There's no weak link in that chain, which is very rare, you know. There really isn't, not for not that I could think of at the moment. Uh, you know, you're talking about dozens of actors, you know, yeah. dozens of you know, quote unquote, main characters, which is interesting. Let me ask you a question before you go sure. on. Please. Do you find because of the model of the books and and therefore the movies and jumping from one party to the next, especially at the beginning of the Two Towers onward, you're jumping from one set of adventurers or good guys to the next. There's a couple of different groups going on, a few different groups. Do you did you find as you were watching Return of the King, the extended edition, that that was the least pleasurable, or the 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 group you were looking forward to the least was going to Sam, Frodo, and sometimes Gollum? That that was the least pleasant to watch. Like you were like, oh, I, you know, you found yourself wanting to get back to Gimli, Legolas, Aragorn, or Rohan, or yeah, Gollum. I know, like,
1: I, I totally agree. In fact, I think someone, I don't know that I I feel like someone wrote in about this. We might not have used it. it, it someone was saying that they basically are renowned in their group of friends for having just skipping all of those scenes. Is that just interesting? Watching everything else. Yeah.
2: I realized something Kyle with this. Please. And watching it this time. Cause I definitely had that sensation during the two towers. Obviously we, and we talked about it, that it was unpleasant and sort of dour and just not really fun to watch. And we liked more like the adventure, especially the first half of the fellowship and everything. But I realized what an amazing job they do, especially in return of the King with the Sam Frodo and Gollum. Sort of expedition, to more you know, through Mordor to Mount Doom, sure. that they do this awesome job of making it very unpleasant to behold. They're dirty, they're they're grimy. It's cold when they go to sleep. They have their head on a rock. You know mm, they they mm. they have nothing to eat. They're starving. They're thirsty. Their lips are dry. It's very very unpleasant. They do a great job of like even in the close ups and the medium shots, you could see the dirt in their fingernails and like you could just see that they haven't had. You just want to take them and put them in a lake somewhere. It's like, yeah, Jesus no, Christ, totally. since the last time you saw water, Right. you know? It's awesome. And I think it makes it really unpleasant, you know? and And, you know, you could just see the unpleasantness in the acting too. Like, they really feel, these actors really feel like they're in that place doing that thing. Like, and, you know, not only that, but the overarching thing is what they're doing is like almost impossible and beyond hope. And they're putting themselves through these conditions of utmost, like, you know any anything that would be adverse to humanity they're 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 enduring through this and i think that's what it is because i think it must be a pretty typical notion that those are the parts that are the least fun to watch it's like let's get back to something that's more you know let's get back to what gandalf's doing or like even what's going on in mordor with the orcs like anything right. like this
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's funny because it, it's it's just a, an interesting piece of irony in the sense that indeed what they're doing is what it's all about everyone everyone is doing everything in service of these two getting to mount doom and yet we don't really want to watch it that much because Great it, it is hard and and i, I had set the mic it's so funny you brought up that I, by the time they, they enter like sam's like a doorway mr frodo and all, and then they they go and they get in there i'm like these guys are fucking worse for wear. there are some shots where it looks like <laughs> someone just beat the ever-loving shit out of Samwise, Gamgee. <laughs> like, just absolutely bashed him the fuck up He's in every way dumb. with a baseball bat and hit him with lacrosse balls and shit. <laughs> I don't know. You know, so it is funny. Like, they are on their last leg, and you feel for them. But oh, you really do. But we, we don't really – it's the least pleasurable thing. When you look at the, the, the runtime, like, yeah, you probably – even you probably could have cut out 10 minutes of this, this, I think we probably would have been okay. Yeah. Like it's enough. But I wanted to ask you since we're talking about Sam and I I don't know if you have any more insight into this. Luke Morgan wrote in about this and says, good day, Colin and Dagan. Longtime listener. First time writing in. Thank you, Luke, for writing Thank in. Thank you. Did you like the change of having Frodo turn on Sam for a time? Was that an improvement over what took place in the books or not, in your opinion? See, so I don't even remember this. I
2: don't remember that either.
1: I guess this is different. So the whole thing of Sam getting mad at, or I guess Frodo getting mad at Sam. Yeah. And then getting rescued from the spider. That happens in a different way in the book. I don't really know. Yeah. I don't do you have any insight that. into that? I don't remember that. I, I do like
2: Sam being pitted against Frodo. Cause it's the ultimate drama. It's the last two characters you expect to be at odds with each other. And it's all, I mean, much of it is, you know, well, it's two things really. It's Frodo being under the stress of the ring but you know, in a larger part it's due to Gollum scheming and what he wants to happen the way he thinks he's going to achieve his ends is by pitting these two against each other so it's really heartbreaking because when you see you know sort of Gollum plants an idea like to Frodo like he's going to ask for the ring and then Gollum sets those wheels in motion so it does end up that way where Sam does ask for the ring but Sam's genuinely saying you know Sam's a noble dude he's genuinely saying like I want to help my friend And relieve him of this burden for a little while, you know, and the way Frodo takes it. And of course, being under the thralls of the ring and that, that, you know, he's, he's not going to let anybody have it. He's taking exception to like, you want my thing, you know, you, you covet my ice cream bar type thing, you know? Right. So, So it's, you know, I, I think it's awesome. I, I, and it's funny, I don't remember the way it plays out in the book. I think it's probably similar, but there probably are those things that set it that do set it apart from the book and just playing it up for visual drama and stuff. But I do like the way the movie does it. I I enjoy it. I think it's um you know, cuz you're really you who knows if you didn't know the story, let's say you're just jumping into this film, you never read the book, you would never you know, it get the the drama gets heightened to such a degree that you're like maybe they will fall out maybe these two are going to fall out and that's to the detriment of the whole quest who knows so i like it for the for the dramatic you know elements of that
1: well eric Seaback wrote into us on patreon and says hi guys big fan of the show i have to say as a fan of the first two films that this one always puts me to sleep the scenes with frodo and sam are so long (laughs) frequent boring and repetitive i find myself fast forwarding through those sections just to make it through do you Jen, share the same feelings of bromance boredom okay thanks for all you do the show is a huge highlight of the week I don't. I mean, I feel like the bromance between the the four hobbits, but of course Sam and Frodo specifically, and of course Merry and Pippin specifically with them with each other as well. True is quite endearing. I mean, that I that I never grow tired of. To be honest, I I I was just a little tired of like like I said, Gollum. So I have no problem. Do you have a problem with the the shining bromance? Because (laughs) it's funny too. There are just there's a scene. There are certain scenes like when they go to the various cities and. And At the end, when they're celebrating after the victory, and it's like, oh, there are women, there's women in this movie. Like, it's just, it just all is about bro- there are a couple of women, obviously, but there it's just bromance. Do, you, oh, get, do you get tired of it?
2: No, and it really is. I mean, the Sam, specifically the Sam Frodo thing, I mean, it's it's a it's an epic bromance of fiction, you know. But I, you know, I can read not to be cheesy or to be too schmalty, but. I can relate to a bromance thing. I feel that way about people in my life, you know, with Colin and my friend PJ and stuff like that. So, And I love the fact that it's more of a one-sided bromance. Like, obviously, Frodo loves Sam too, but Sam's like, he's just super down for his boy. You know what I mean? Like, that loyalty, the, the loyalty to that end is something really special. And I think it's also in the performances. You know, Sean Astin and Elijah Wood, they just... They just knock it out of the park with that. I could see, you know, we talk about this with the two towers. It crosses over into kind of funny-esque territory, not purposely sometimes. And that's okay, you know. But for the most part, I think it's really a great part of the story, you know, because there's no way, without feeling the way they do for each other, especially Sam for there's no way they're pulling this off. You know, it's the concrete that's holding the entire thing together. Indeed. So it's I for me it's yeah I I I definitely enjoy it.
1: All right, let's talk about Saruman a little bit. Brent Linquist wrote into us and said, "Hey, fellas, I'd love to know what you think of the omission of the scouring of the Shire. Saruman's fade is one of my least favorite parts of how Peter Jackson handled the trilogy. And while I understand that this movie is already long enough, Saruman is a crucial character, and he's totally omitted from the theatrical version of The Return of the King. And they certainly take some shortcuts with him in the extended cut. Thanks for the podcast. So I found this weird as well." I don't remember, not just the omission of that, which I remember being a controversy at the time. Yeah. And they don't really pick up that that they ever compromise. happened at the end of the film right? either. So that is omitted, and it, it does remove some of the agency from why, for instance, the halflings are interested in this battle at all while they um are usually in their, you know, in their little part of Middle Earth, drinking and eating and farming and doing whatever sure. they do. Sure. So, that is a little strange, but I also didn't remember. It's true. It's almost like he's a he. he Sarmon's almost like gone. Like it doesn't even matter anymore. Like it's almost like he was like a MacGuffin or something. Yeah. So how do you feel about the way he was handled and all that? I I do love him on the tower, what, trying to cast one last spell, seeing Isengard in ruins and the the. The tree folk are there, and the and it's totally flooded because they destroyed all those like dams they were using, and it's very cool. So I like all of that. But what what did you think about the way they kind of handled him? Because they kind of just dispatched with him, almost like Darth Maul, where it doesn't even seem like he's very Very actually was very important at all.
2: Yeah, like how instrumental is this guy going to be? Obviously, who's cool right. for a little while, but then what happened?
1: Yeah, it, it, I do remember
2: this being a polarizing thing, especially when the film came out. One of the biggest changes from the book, especially in Return of the King. And, you know, it starts with the confrontation with Saruman in, in Isengard at Orthanc, in his tower, where Gandalf and Theoden and the party confront him. And one of my favorite scenes in the book, too, is what they, I think it's in the, if don't, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's in the two towers in the novel. For this, they pushed it into Return of the King. They confront him. Gandalf breaks his staff. Saruman's like, what the fuck? Like, Gandalf's ten times more powerful. What happened? And then they sort of just leave him there you know they sort of they don't murder him in the book so so Grima Grima doesn't murder Saruman in the novel they just off to their own day. they just leave him there they just kind of cast him out they say you're done you're finished your staff's broken you have no more power here and which is almost kind of a cooler end but then in the novel Everything's said and done. The ring's disposed of. The hobbits head back to the Shire, and then there's this guy. They on the way back. There's all this drama because they're hearing about this guy. If I'm again, correct me if I'm wrong. It's been a while, but there's this guy named Sharky that's terrorizing the Shire. So they're trying to get back as fast as they can. Well, Sharky turns out to be Saruman, and he turns out to be this you know indispensable or you know uh, sort of in a, in a way invincible cancer that just keeps coming back. And now in a vindictive turn, he's just like terrorizing the Shire. That's what he's going to do to pay back for his insult, for his being cast down and everything like that, which is interesting. I like that Saruman never really goes away, and then he has to sort of become like a local villain. He goes from being like, you know, a Mordor or a Sauron-esque villain trying to be buddy-buddy with Sauron to being like this local thug, you know, bad guy, which is, which is actually kind of really cool if you think about it. In the movie, they just murder him. You know, he's murdered in that confrontation. Staff's broken. Grima stabs him, falls from the tower, dies, and then Legolas kills Grima, Grima, of course, with the arrow in the heart. Yeah,
1: and so there is that, that or- difference. And they get that orb as well. Right, the Palantir.
2: Him. Right. Which is the seeing stone, which is like this whole thing about... And, you know, the histories of the, of the, the Palantirs confuse me a little bit. They're supposed to be, I think, initially they were supposed to be a communication device between the, the quote-unquote good guys, that they could see things, they could maybe see the future, they could kind of look into each other's realms and almost like, you know, like, <laughs> this is a terrible thing to say, but almost like primitive cell phone type thing, you right. know, with perks, with benefits, because you could also see a little bit of the future. So right, think about right. if our iPhones could do that type of thing, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah, big differences with the with the the Saruman character. But um, which one do you like better? Like, would you... I can't. The thing is, I can't see making this movie any longer. Like, if they got back to the Shire and then they're dealing with Sharky and all that kind of stuff, it's like.
1: Yeah, it it almost feels like it it is like. It's almost anticlimactic. It just. I don't know. I don't know. I I felt like they had Grima kill him in order to get rid of this question that might have been asked by the audience, reasonably so, about like, well, why can't he just help you? And that's, that's why I think they they might have felt the need to dispatch of him in such a way for the audience so that the audience isn't like, but this dude's working for him and you're just leaving him there or you're just not going to, you know, right. you got to, doesn't really make, it doesn't really make <laughs> any sense. Like, why wouldn't you try to leverage his information or turn him in some way, even if you can't trust him? So I understand people being upset with that, but I actually, the only thing I really remember about that is just that it was a big deal back back then. I do remember that people were complaining about this on the earlier internet
2: uh, yeah definitely it was one of the, yeah well, it does seem like one of those big Napster era you know argument chat room argument type things oh that's gibbets and crows
1: gibbets Jim- dotard <laughs> dotard is a great <laughs>
2: we shall isn't... have peace i love theoden in that scene man he's just like peace because you know like he's got sarmon has got that and i don't know how much they play it up in the films but he has that silver tongue thing where he just talks he, he's doing the bob ross thing he's making you it's like oh, all right yeah this guy just didn't kill thousands of our people like he almost like he lulls you into sub, submission with that silver tongue and that was supposed to be one of his powers like he would he was a, a master of that and he would he would get you under his spell you know and Theodon's just like fuck you we'll have peace when you're fucking hanging from a gibbet with this for the sport of my crows <laughs>
1: <laughs> so epic dude i love it yeah it's that all, it's good stuff no for sure and in, the, in those scenes too i do love you know seeing tree beard again and there's a lot of good tree beard there are some great tree tree beard quotes but i love when he says uh, trees will come to live here young trees wild trees <laughs> it's just a great just a great character and um so next i want to talk about i guess Minas tirith as a location and also, you know Gondor and the kings of Gondor, and I love the the tree star logo. It's like so cool. I got I got to find a shirt with that on it or whatever. Oh, that would be a good shirt. You're right. Yeah, it would be. It would be really cool. I I was saying that I, I I love this complex architecture in this world, wherein it would have been so much easier for you to have just built this thing against the mountain, and yet you build it into the mountain, and it's just it's just it's incredible. It's just really cool visual flair all these like alcoves in various places of middle earth that are just one with nature basically which i guess is really part of the theme of the film so what did you think about this location and kind of the the ultimate battle that culminates around it is is pretty cool to to behold and does hold up very well oh it's so, beautiful
2: it's so cool i love that you have these last two strongholds of men you know these once great I don't know these one, two once great places of of mankind of civilization you have and we see a lot in the two towers we see a lot of Rohan and including Helm's Deep and everything like that and then for this movie we get to see Gondor Minas Tirith and that whole great sort of structure of man like this whole the, the two great empires of man the two remaining ones really I guess you should, you could say and it's just so cool yeah it's such a it's such a set piece you know it's just a Beautiful stone, not even a palace, just like an entire city, basically built into the side of the mountain. And the whole um, tale with the tree and the tree coming back to life, and how that was a you know that was a symbol of the entire place and the entire civilization. Super, super, super cool. And you know, basically controlled by a steward, you know, in Denethor who is completely out of his mind. And you know, he's got he lost his son. He's got the son that he doesn't favor still around, that whole arc taking place in that that whole thing. And also like making you wonder like, is this gonna be the end of these two great historic civilizations? Is this gonna be the end of the two last strongholds of men? Is this gonna be it for them? And you know, the way it's ravaged during the battle and it's just all but destroyed. Denethor falling from the great height, you know, on fire, falling from that great precipice up there and everything like that. It's so cool. I love the way it centers around. It's a beautiful place, but there's also a great sort of bleakness and sadness about it when the soldiers are heading out to battle and they, they, they know the odds are all but against them. And, you know, there's just something so cool about Stone you know, like it it's something so cool about, you know, how it endures, but how it erodes, how it rounds out from the water over time. And, you know, it kind of felt like that was a, you know, like a heavy symbolism for what was going on in the world, you know, with this, this epic battle of good versus evil. I just thought, I just love it. I, I don't think they could have done any better with realizing these places for the screen, because they're great places of our imagination from the novels. And then, there's a lot of responsibility, man. That that makes me nervous just thinking about it, like actually visually translating it for the first time, you know, for such a, you know, obviously we had the earlier Bakshi and Rankin and Bass version, animated things and stuff like that and illustrations and all that thing. But for, you know, sanctioned for big Hollywood, big budget pictures, it's a big undertaking. And they did, they did an awesome job. I mean, it's so cool. Like every, it seems like every stone was thought about, you know, every, every sort of, keystone every corner every staircase so i i you know i can't i can't imagine them doing that any better
1: yeah i like how they leave that one huge natural stone in the middle of it which they then walk on top of like at the very very top and that's where the the tree is and like the really green grass and so cool yeah really striking visuals and very uh, bright to dark which is cool it's like one of the only bright pa- parts of the entire film is actually on top of that in that area with the, the, the dying King tree or whatever it is. What about the bad guys? I guess I'm, this is one of the things I had mentioned earlier. It's almost hard to know like what is even going on at this point in some way, like who is Sauron and what is the eye, the great eye and all of this. And I love the way they have, of course the rendition of the great eye is awesome. I love how it's literally just like a spotlight. It's so cool. It's, a, it's very cool. It's creepy as shit. And it absorbs its information as it sees things. And yet, uh, I'm, and I was looking, that's why I went on the Lord of the Rings Wikipedia, whatever it's called, Middle Earth Wikipedia or whatever, to to read about the orcs because I was trying to figure out, and I, I, I'm sure it's explained in the books, but I don't remember. The Uruk-hai are being made by other orcs. And I was like, well, are the orcs a sentient? race like do they have a society because as i was looking at their we see a little bit of them it looks like they have like merchants they obviously have people that are making equipment and leather workers and blacksmiths and i was just really interested in like what is the motive behind this and yet it doesn't seem like they have any and i don't really know what it would be and then you have these other human, which, which I'm more fascinated about these humans, like the the seafaring human pirate type enemies and the people that ride the elephants. What is in it for them? We don't really understand like what this whole it's supposed to be the end of the age of men. So why are they fighting? If that's what it's literally openly being called, I, I guess. Is there any clarity as far as you know of what what? what the point is of all of this. That's the thing I'm trying to kind of struggle to understand.
2: It is a weird thing. I've been thinking a lot about this with watching this movie and it's, you know, a lot of it to me and, you know, a lot of it, I might just not know because I am very interested in the Lord of the Rings and the lore and the companion fiction and, the, you know, the similar alien and all that stuff. But I, I, my knowledge is limited. I don't, that's not what I study day in and day out, but I you was thinking know. a lot about this and you have this in fiction, right? You could even say this about Star Wars. It's like, It seems like the goal of the quote-unquote bad guys is just conquest. They just want to rule everything. And everybody else is going to be under their thumb. That's the goal. So you could say Dr. Evil, the Empire, and Star Wars. You know, of course, Sauron and the powers of Mordor. All all these things in fiction, it's like that seems to be the overarching goal. And it doesn't seem to be any more complicated than that. I love your point about orcs. Like, I thought about that, what you just said. When you see like their war camps, right? Just like the men have their war camps, they have their tents, they have their barrels filled with water, they have their provisions, they have their crates, they have all these these type of things. So of course, and we of course we know they eat and they drink and all that kind of stuff. So they need to survive like men do. We know that orcs in this world in the Tolkien universe or whatever are sort of like the dark elves. You know, we know they're sort of like the dark version of elves, right? If if I'm not mistaken. So there's a lot to be said there, but, but you raise a good point. Like, do they live naturally in any part of this Middle Earth? You know, do they inhabit any, or, or is there their home Mordor, and is their role to be soldiers? Unlike elves, who live naturally in the world and fight when they need to fight, right? So it's a different thing. That's a great, that's a great point and a great question. And then you have the whole point about really just, I mean, it's hard to say, right? Like you have all of these different races, so you have the dark side, you have the light side, and you have everybody that aligns with them. Now you t- talk about like the eastern men, the pirates, the mercenaries, the bounty hunters that align themselves with Mordor, right? You could ascertain that they're just trying to get on the right side of history. They're trying to they they're trying to draw up with the winning side because they, you know, the power of Mordor. Is overwhelming. I think, talk about OP, right? Like there was nobody that thought Mordor wasn't going to come out on top when you look at the odds. So you have these men who are less scrupulous aligning themselves with Mordor. So when Mordor wins, they think that they're not going to be crushed, like the men of Gondor and the men of, you know, M- Minas Tirith and all that kind of stuff, and Rohan, and and the elves and the dwarves and the eagles and all that kind of stuff. So there's there's such there's such a lot there. To take in with that and how complicated is it supposed to be, you know? And also, just thinking of Sauron, very traditional evil thing, maybe even hearkening back to like mythology or Beowulf epic tales of good versus evil at thousands of years old. It's like you have this evil that is always every age of man has this evil that they have to face. And it seems like it always takes on a new physical form every so often. It's defeated. And then it, it's, its physical manifestation is defeated. It's, its sort of spiritual presence lives on and it, it embodies a new host for the next age of man, right? And we know Sauron, the original evil in Middle-earth in this world was Melkor, And then Sauron came out of that original evil, which was Melkor, and then Sauron's sort of generation. But then we also know that Sauron's been around. You know, he's been vanquished before, defeated, comes back. We know it's happened at least once. So, and then he kind of embodied, and then when he comes back, it's like a, it's like a flu, it's like a virus, right? It's like COVID that comes back. It's a new strain. You knew how to defeat the old strain. So it doesn't seem any more complicated than that. I, I guess if you dig deep enough, you could find out more about Tolkien's, or at least the way people understood Tolkien's things. I'm not sure how much he said about this kind of stuff, or how much of it was you know just in his head or maybe even not thought about it at all you know but yeah you know, I mean, people tra it, a lot of that is people translating the stuff over the years and what they think right you
1: know. right so, it, it is interesting because I, I was trying to think about that i'm like well what is the what is everyone's end game and uh, the humans thinking that they might survive or whatever it would be interesting to know too obviously those tribes or those countries or kingdoms were not wiped out in in totality, they, they lost their armies or whatever armies they sent. So it would be interesting to know, too, what their fate was since they went with the wrong side. Yeah. Dude, dude, does now the, the one true king come and bring them back into the fold? Or There's just a lot of... See, that's what I, I was... I found myself so interested and kind of drawn in more of wanting to know more about all this ancillary stuff and not really caring a great deal about the main quest that they were on. And that maybe that's the sign of a good, of good fiction where it wants you leaving more. I felt the same way about, in some way about Game of Thrones where it's like, oh man, like this is cool, all this, but what is going on over here? Let's talk a little bit more about, let's just stay at the wall the entire time. It's fa- right, going. the yeah.
2: wall, it's fascinating, right? You have, Like even, the, you're absolutely right. Because as soon as you see the pirates or those brigands that wash up and then Aragorn's like, go back because we're going to kick your ass. Like don't land that ship up here type of thing. You also see the guys, you know, the very 300-esque elephant warrior guys and yeah, stuff mad like that max.
1: it's like where it's like mad max almost they reminded me of in some way absolutely yeah
2: mad max 300 you know what pick a video game you know right god of <laughs> yeah, war rage like, all that yeah kind of that, stuff. oh yeah god of war god definitely of war, right so but you automatically you compelled you like well all right i want to see where these guys live like when they're not fighting on top of these giant elephants like where do they where do they hold up well like what do their civilizations look like their places of right um, you know do they live on the ocean do they live in the desert like what's the story cuz you really again you really only see and i guess man is really down to rohan and gondor and you don't you know everybody or unless you know the other met pockets of men are much smaller like they even talk about where i think theoden is like like marching along the lines like his front lines and like where are these guys where are these guys and like they didn't show up so like it's it's suggested that there are smaller civilizations but gondor and rohan are the ones holding it down you know that's like la and new york you know and chicago and then maybe chicago you know what i mean that and the other ones are the small the smaller cities the the sea level cities and stuff so
1: yeah it's it's fascinating just i don't know i just want to know specifically more about the orcs motives and if they just beget each other in some supernatural way because they are corrupted elves we know that but yeah, just like where they might live naturally. It's always like, what's like, where do chick where are chickens just walking around? <laughs>
2: it's a good point. And then we yeah, know we... there's like thousands left after the battle. It's like Gandalf's like, there's ten thousand orcs between Mordor and and Frodo, and we have to do something. He's like, they didn't send out the other where, you know, they just kept the other ten thousand reserve. How many orcs are there? You know? It's right. interesting.
1: It, yeah, it is. It's it's fascinating. And I, I do love the totally inorganic nature of the of the orcs armor and stuff. I mean obviously they have some leather pieces and whatnot but I, I was especially drawn to their bows and arrows i don't know if you noticed this they they have like arrows that use it's just all wood so like they have just frayed wood at the back for like that where the feathers would be and stuff it's just very oh, that's cool whoever did that kind of stuff is like whoever made those kinds of decisions very cool because I, I did like i was just amazed about how well the orcs still stood up and i'm like yes it's so nice that you made the, the right decision and didn't make these in the battle droids or something yet i do also think that there's a question to be asked about well if the orcs are just manufactured yeah they seem to they understand language they're they're telling them to get in lines they all seem to have their own weapons of choice there seems to be ranks because there's like you know they're, they're doing like inspections and stuff like that and so sure i'm just going to ask the same question i asked in episode one about this which is like why wouldn't you just make the officer versions of the orcs if they're all just made out of whole cloth then why would you make any infantry battle droids there's a commander battle droid just make him over and over whatever is special about him replicate yeah. him and uh so that's, that's my one question. that's a hang up for me where I'm like just make all of the big guys and also just make all those are guys. the trolls and yeah. all the other creatures that they show are they part of that society or like is there a troll society you know <laughs> that's that what I'm all, wondering it's it, i am i'm like because like are they are they in league now and it's cool there's just yeah like a lot of these smaller groups and then also we see the, some, some of the smaller good guy groups like the Eagles and others that come in later where you kind of wonder like where and of course the I didn't say it to Mike until it was all done because I know it ruins it for everyone but I'm like alright so the argument against this whole thing now is why no one just went to the Eagles and said can you take this ring <laughs> and fly in the Mordor and just drop it into the into the mountain right or if you don't trust that you'll be maybe you'll get taken over by it just take this hobbit in your claws and bring them. Drop him. And oh, drop no. him in there. <laughs> don't tell him you're going to drop him in there. Yeah. So I, I was always, I, that, that, by the way, does that bother you at all? I know that that's like the thing everyone makes fun of. It's like, why? No, I mean, Eagles that's a great point,
2: especially when you see the Eagles sort of come in and battle the Nazgul. And the Nazgul are shook, dude. Not, they don't have a chance. Like the Eagles are fierce, right? Like, especially when you think, all right, they, their air defense isn't even savvy enough to deal with the Eagles. Just send the Eagles in, you know? But the Eagles, I think the Eagles seem a little elfish to me. They're like the elves of the air. You know, they're just kind of like going to be off to their own devices until they're really needed. Like they're not, you know, they're nationalists. Right. They're not going to get involved unless, you know, unless it's going to be the zero hour. That's how the Eagles strike me. It's like, we have well, our that's own why, problems.
1: That, that, well, that's where the whole United States reference to them come, like why everyone thinks it's such an overt reference to the U.S. There you go. Coming in and rescuing everyone at the end and fight you know taking the credit basically i know they could have been giant geese you chose eagles come on right i know it exactly our bird but i also feel like i'm curious about their society now what's going on with the eagles where are they where do they live oh is that what they're called eerie's i don't know yeah
2: yes i'm gonna go with
1: yes (laughs) yes okay that's fair enough they I wanted to ask you, there's this random character that we see. Ke- Kevin Komaki wrote in and said that dude that came out of Mordor's gate before the battle looks so cool. So like their major Domo Bib Fortuna like guy there. I loved that scene. It's I don't so know good. if that scene that scene must be in the book. But. I dig that. I don't know. I, I want to just call out that scene because oh, I love so how he's like, is there anyone I can parlay with or whatever? Like he's, it's almost like he's a proper diplomat.
2: Oh, it's so good, it's, dude. Yeah. He's yeah. like the emissary. Yeah. The mouth of Sauron. I love the fact that you just have his mouth. Like he's probably blind. Right. And he's obviously very intelligent. He's also extremely insulting. Yeah. Like, is there anyone here worthy of the treat with me or whatever? <laughs> you know, just insulting the shit out of everybody. <laughs> looks like his mouth's bleeding. It looks very painful. I mean, I wouldn't, I don't. I don't think that I understand why he's aggravated he's you know he's probably got lady problems I mean, yeah I
1: mean he's got a lot of problems <laughs> he's lonely
2: you know that type of thing yeah but that's I mean that and that scene correct me if I'm wrong Kyle that scene was not in the theatrical version that was reserved for the extended version
1: I oh really I don't know I don't remember I just I, I if I'm not yeah, mistaken. I loved it it was great and that was
2: one of the ones I was so excited to see it was like and that's one of the scenes you look at and you're like why did they leave this out this is amazing And even after all that, like appealing, still appealing to like calling Sauron out at his own gates, like get out here. Like we're going to, and like saying like, you're going to answer for your crimes type of thing. And then he sends this guy out. The only thing I don't like about this, and I think you and I have talked about this before pre knockback. I don't remember, but I think it's sort of a character betraying moment for Aragorn. I don't feel like Aragorn would have, would have beheaded the guy. In mid-sentence, you know, he's obviously egregious. He's lying. He's saying that they tortured the shit out of their best friend. You know, he's, he's extreme. Obviously he's the mouth of evil and everything like that. But I just don't feel like Aragorn would have done that. I just, unless it was sort of like saying like, he's still growing to that kingly role. Like he's not there yet, but he's going to be there in like another hour. I don't know. For me, it was like (laughs) not the proper thing for a nobleman to do.
1: You know right I, mean? I think i think it was because he couldn't if what he was saying was true then everything was for naught right and he exactly almost, right so at exactly. that point i almost i almost interpreted it as him being like well fuck it i mean we have nothing if this is true we have nothing to lose if he's lying we'll lop his head off it doesn't that's really matter point. you know that's
2: a really good point yeah i know saying like everything's lost anyway so fuck it you know this is yeah this is the that's why he, he says he
1: just funny. he just didn't believe it because i do love the acting there where he, he realizes that he says something like, oh, the halfling is important to you or special to you or something, and, and talking about how his little body suffered so much pain. It's, it's a great writing.
2: And Gandalf but, knows he's lying. He's telling right. the like, shut up. Like, you know, shut up. Like, you're acknowledging the fact of our, the whole thing. You know what I mean?
1: So, the hobbits so cool. are always just getting everyone in the trouble. They're
2: always, you know, I love you, Pippin, but you got to be quiet sometimes.
1: What about the, the – We talked about the Nazgul and the, the Witch King. We can talk about it a little bit. What what'd you think about kind of the leadership of the bad guys and their appearances? I, I – I love the huge, tall helmet in which you cannot see oh, the face. So cool. It's just as if it's an entity. So, what cool. did you think about kind of the, the various designs of all of that? I love also his mace. Oh, he, the giant mace. And you can just, it makes such a realistic noise as it hits into the ground. It's like when you drop something heavy into dirt yeah, or into grass. Yeah, it just grass. sinks. It's just, yeah, it's just awesome. Like, I just, oh. and you, yeah. So, what did you think about all of that, about those kinds of visuals? So good. I love
2: the Witch King, the Witch King of Angmar. I love. You know, I always love that model of like the bag, like the Sauron having his lieutenants. Like, there's other badass, like the mini bosses, right? We right, came, we came right. up with eight-bit video games. We know we know about boss battles and all that kind of stuff. You gotta have the mini bosses, and I, I wish I wish we got more cool stuff with the Witch King because we hear about him. Gandalf's kind of explaining him to Pippin. He's like, you know, the you know the enemy has these has these cohorts, these, these lieutenants that are going to come out that we're going to have to battle and they're extremely powerful and all that. And then as I think it's when Pippin sort of summons Gandalf to go save Faramir on the funeral pyre, he's not dead, obviously. And they're kind of intercepted by the Nazgul and the Witch King. And they have that standoff and you're like, all right, this is going to be an epic battle. And the Witch King just he has that flaming sword, right? Shades of Beric, puts a sword up. The sword goes into flames. He's like, oh, shit. I thought shit. the exact just,
1: same thing. Yeah, I thought so, it's, so good. it's going
2: to be so good. It's going to be like the whole Balrog battle all over again, dealing with like a major, you know, somebody who's like a major threat for even Gandalf. And then he just breaks Gandalf's staff, just like Gandalf did to Saruman. And you're like, oh, shit. Like, Gandalf is fucked. And then you hear the horns or whatever, and the, the Nazgul and the Witch King get distracted, and they fly off. So Gandalf could have been killed in that moment little bit of suspension of disbelief right
1: right it's so funny you say that because i said the bike i'm like why didn't you just do could it just
2: finished him off
1: two seconds could, and then turn around and flew away that's it he it, had no staff it was just it, i i totally it's so funny you brought up those those few things that i was saying the same exact things the beric comparison and then the yeah where i was like you could have just murdered have gandalf just
2: had, right what it's that was that was should have been thought through a little more that's a little bit of a weak point you know, a little bit of a, a little bit stretched stretch for me. And then you could have had the proper payoff with him facing. Well, I love the scene where, you know, they're kind of Theoden's kind of on his last legs and he's still trying to rally the troops. I love the character of Theoden. I really
1: think he's a great guy. Yeah, he's awesome. Yeah.
2: So good. And they're kind of on their last legs and he's trying to summon the troops and get their spirits up. And he turns and he sees the witch king flying at him. And even his face is like, fuck me. Like, yeah, I it's awesome.
1: It's great acting. You, yeah, know, you like- just
2: see the despair. You know what I mean? Like even in this king's face, like this, this epic hero's face is just like, fuck. And then he gets killed. And then he's killed- the witch king is killed. Like he takes out the giant mace. The bottom of the mace is the size of a Volkswagen. And you're like, fuck. Yeah. Like every link in the chain is like this big. It's like, this is going to be amazing. This is like the ultimate boss fight.
1: Yeah. It's like a Castlevania boss or something.
2: And then, yeah, exactly. So cool to look at. You think, like, all right, we're going to get this payoff for this witch king. We're going to see an epic battle. And then like, he's destroyed by Mary and Eowyn and no offense to Eowyn. Like she's obviously a proper warrior and she's extremely courageous, but they, they, first of all, she cuts off the Nazgul's head. She dodges right. cuts off the Nazgul's head. There's no battle. It's like, all right, that's how easy that thing is to defeat. And then they just oh God, dispatch like of the Witch King. It's like, oh, come on. Like, you know, he swings the mace around a few times, breaks her shield, maybe breaks her rib, whatever, you know, type of thing. And you're like, all right, this is a proper start. Like, she's completely overpowered. There's no way this, the, it doesn't matter how courageous she is. No one's going to be able to stand up to this guy. And then they kill him. And he's killed by Mary. It's like you know it was like oh man like i I needed a little more with that i needed just a little bit more of a payoff for that character because he's so cool you know he's got that poison blade and you know he goes all the way back to stabbing he's the one that stabbed frodo at weathertop you know and gave him that poisonous wound that he almost died from so we have some history there and some build up it's like all right give us a proper payoff for this dude obviously he's gotta die right but let's see let's see him like really like do some damage before he dies nope
1: yeah it's a a little strange i I did want to give a shout out um we we were laughing about all of the different memes that come out of these movies and micah pointed out one of the great memes which is when i think it's mary is going to it's mary i think that goes and lights the torch or is that pippin i can't remember one of them oh it's pippin it's pippin okay and gandalf is like kneeling down and he's like you know don't you know it's like you know you can't fail whatever and then you see him just kind of running off like a little body running off and there's a really funny meme i get brought up where it's like you know it's like your mom telling you to go get the onions while you're at the grocery like at the checkout counter and then it's just that. a picture of that and then it's just a picture of him like running away or <laughs>
2: That's it's, awesome.
1: so just such a memeable movie it's so funny oh, i've so I've appreciated good. so many more of the memes after having seen the movies again we're like oh these are so good they're so funny and so many more to come i think Dave, let me ask you about we, we let's go back to the fellowship, not the movie, but the fellowship itself. Let's talk about, you know, our favorite troll, our favorite, I was going to say troll, our favorite uh, dwarf, or dwarf, <laughs> as Dagan says. I say dwarf too, so uh, Gimli, and of course, uh, Legolas, our elf. I have to say, my big critique, or one of my big critiques of the two towers, and what one of the reasons why I think it's the weakest of the three movies in hindsight is, it's just Gimli fucking comedy hour. And I feel like, <laughs> They really toned it down in this movie. I don't know if that was by intent. I don't know if they got that feedback and they were able to cut things permanently to not make him like Don Rickles in Middle Earth. And (laughs) it makes the things that he says and the things that he does that are funny because he is a comical character in the books, as I recall, he's supposed to be a you know, they're supposed to be gregarious and jovial and drunk and loud and all that. And that's great. But then it makes some of the other stuff that he does really funny. The drinking contest, I thought, was really cute. And he says a quote in there, which is, it it is an absolutely amazing quote. I think it's on my first page, which is, yeah, it's the dwarves that go swimming with little hairy women. (laughs) (laughs) It's like just ridiculous. He just says (laughs) like ridiculous quotes like that. And it's just so good. And I also enjoyed later on when they're going after the undead, you know, humans that they're trying to get in league with to kind of forgive them for their treachery in the past or whatever and their their cowardice in the past how like he's blowing at them you know and trying to like it's so funny and it's just it's, it's it is funny like so I feel like Gimli pops more in this movie for me in a positive way because they use him less and it's less ridiculous in that regard and I even think that they showed a lot of first of all I will make fun of this about Legolas is that every shot of Legolas, and I, if you're not watching the video, you won't, won't see this, but every shot of him is when, he, when it zooms in, it's like this. <laughs> you, know, like, you know what I mean? With like the wet eyes and like... I thought, you,
2: I thought I was looking at Orlando Bloom there for a second. You know what I'm talking about? Where it's like I, I exactly every, shot, every shot,
1: every <laughs> shot is him looking like he has a shit-eating grin on his face. Like as if he's like very like, yes, of course you're looking at me and I'm looking at you. And it's yes. kind of... And it's it's very, very becoming and like, you know, falling into the camera. And I it's very funny, but he's such a likable character. And Orlando <laughs> Bloom is so fun as this character that even the because we were making fun of him surfing, like snowboarding down the stairs. Ugh. They have a very similar moment in this when he's killing one of the the elephant creatures. Yeah. And but it doesn't come off quite so bad. So how do you feel about my interpretation of Gimli and Legolas kind of reeling it in? And I, I wish. I knew if they were able if they got those notes and were able to kind of fix that in this one, because why would they ramp it up so much and then stop? It's yeah. very similar to Jar Jar Binks, right? Like George Lucas had this fucking grand scheme. To have Jar Jar Binks in all three movies is a main character. In, and they were like and they took him out, right? Like they made him a less important character because everyone's like, there's no way you can have Jar Jar, Jar Binks is fucking sucks, right? He's the you worst. can't have Jar Jar Binks, the character in this anymore. And. And I, so is, do you think it's similar or, I mean, talk to me about Absolutely. And, about I
2: mean, yeah, I mean, you have to talk about Gimli. You have to talk about Legolas. I mean, shout out to Orlando Bloom doing the smolder for the camera. I feel oh, like yeah. they told him like, I, again, like I don't want to land too hard on Orlando Bloom. I think he's fine. And I think he really looks the part, you know, he's very handsome. He's got that whole, he's got that whole, you know, fair skin, like really handsome, like a elvish type of appeal. The physicality certainly And But I feel like they told him, like, all right, Orlando, like, elves are really solemn. They're self-satisfied, you know? Like, they're very comfortable in their skin. They're powerful, all that kind of stuff. I feel like they just should have also said, like, but you could emote a little bit. Like, you could actually be not be a robot elf. Like, that would be okay, too, like, type of thing. But, you know, that aside, he does have his sort of epic hero moment. But I feel like it's more Shadow of Colossus in this. Like, he doesn't skateboard. He just... It shows the agility, you know, the prowess. You know, he's a good fighter. He's good with the bow. He's quick. He's extremely nimble. Okay, I get it. Like, that was cool. Like, that was the way to handle it. So I feel like they learned from that. And with Gimli, it's funny, right? You have, like, I feel like it's John, Bad dates, Indy. Rise Davies, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like they're just, again, I feel like they're just capitalizing on the Sala character a little bit. I feel like the problem with Gimli. I like it because you know the dwarves are kind of fearless, and he's definitely got that. Like he makes the joke at the at the the most you know tenacious moments. He makes a you know he makes a at the, at the most tentative moments rather. He's he's making jokes and he's he's quipping and all that kind of stuff. I get it. I think what would have been cool if you you saw now with the exception of the Hobbit and that, of course those movies don't count. We don't see a lot of dwarves. So I think if we got some more dwarves and some different personalities in the dwarves, then Gimli could have just stood out as his own character instead of like, all oh, Dwarves are like this, you know, which it feels like silly in a way. And of course he has the playful rivalry with Legolas and I like all that, where they're doing the count on the battlefield. And it, you know, it talks to their courage. Still counts as one. Courage. <laughs> counts still counts as one. <laughs> so it's uh, but you know, for it would have been. I guess you didn't really need more dimension in the Gimli character, but it would have been cool. I think really more so than Gimli, it would have been cool to represent the dwarves a little better because even the dwarves a little better because- the Dwarves. Dwarves a little better. I can't say it normal.
1: It's I just right, have a problem. Just, they'll deal with it. Deal with
2: it. <laughs> so, but you know, even with the elves you get, it's mostly Legolas, but you get Caliborn and you get- Galadriel and Elrond and Arwen, and you see some of the other dwarves and the other iterations and stuff. Uh, Elves, rather. So with the dwarves, it's like really all you're getting is Gimli. It's not really fair, you know, to represent a whole race of people with just you know poor Gimli. But and also the other thing with Gimli, I know I've mentioned this before. I don't like the axes. I don't like the long staff-like battle axes. Their axes should look like they weigh 150 pounds. You know, the blade should be like. They, I I feel like they should be stout. Like the, right, the blade right, right. looks like a like this axe looks like a, a normal man can't even pick it up. You know what I mean? It should just look like, you know, to swing this thing. I, which I guess is a typical D and D iteration of a what how we grew up the dwarves to, you know, to know of a of a dwarf. I think of like, if you know anime, Record of Lotus War, I forget the dwarves name in that. But he's really cool. He's got that big axe that looks like really like it's it's made of concrete you know that's what I really wanted that's a big hang up for me for some reason I don't know why but besides that I think you know I think because you have so much gravity in characters that are like all but humorless like Aragorn you know I think the other Gimli and Legolas should have to balance him out a little bit with that levity I think because it's really the three of them for a big batch of these three films it's just the three of them on screen
1: also I love the the Legolas line where he's like what about as a friend (laughs) When they, you know who would have known I would have do- died with a dwarf he's like, what about a friend <laughs> and how about drunk
2: Legolas he's like I think I'm feeling a little bit of tingling in this finger and Gimli's yeah. like passing out
1: it's great it's great Yeah, that, that, I, I think they did a really nice shot with them um, in this film Dig, I wanted to ask you about quotes from this film ah. Harold wrote into us and said hi gents I can't carry it for you but I can carry you I find myself often performing this line at my friends most of the time, completely unprompted. Now you've watched all three. Do you have a favorite quote from the films, and why is it? Looks like meets back on the menu, boys. And then late, <laughs> and then Lazy B wrote in and said, "Howdy, Island boys! Is Run Shadow Fox show us the meaning of haste? Not one of the most badass lines of all time. Keep up thy good work as always. Thank you, Lazy B and Harold for writing it. Think are there any quotes from the film that stand out to you? I have quite a few actually. So I was curious if uh, do you really? Yeah, I, I just was writing down a lot of them. Yeah, as I was going.
2: I like a, yeah, Sam's not if I stick you first.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Oh, Sam. Sam's been waiting to stick Frodo the three movies now. So,
2: Well, before you tell me yours, you know what springs to yeah, mind for please. me? Yeah. In a serious way, Aragorn's speech to the soldiers at the gates of Mordor. You know, I see the look in your eyes that would take the heart of me. That that one always gets me. That's a, that's a proper speech. And then Theoden's sort of rousing speech at the beginning of the battle. I guess you know the the earlier battle to his troops, and he's like, "Ride now!" and he's he's ro- rolling down the line, smacking everyone's spear with it with his sword. I love I love Theoden. I think he's a great character. And I think of the time that Gandalf spends on the edge of battle Gandalf. with Pippin, yeah. Like everything they say, he says to Pippin about what death is going to be like, and trying to be honest with his friend, but also comforting. And seeing this character, you know, I love the Pippin and Mary thing. We talked about this a little bit with Two Towers, but it really drives home in this one where you see in the beginning of the film, you see Mary and Pippin. They're very Hobbit-like, right? Even in the midst of like Isengard being just totally dismantled and Treebeard walking around destroying shit. Like they're just sitting there eating, drinking and smoking, sort of reveling in those, those comforts. And, Just enjoy and just very hobbit like, you know, very self indulgent, enjoying life and joking around. And then it goes to them having to face reality. And you see, Pippin, he's, I think of the hobbits like kids almost. They're innocent, you know, they're not, they're certainly not warriors in any way. They're just, you know, really these innocent beings. And he's on the edge of war and they're seeing, you know, the flames in Mordor and that bolt come down from the sky. And that whole exchange with that whole loss of innocence with Pippin of like, it's one thing for a warrior like Gandalf to be on the edge of battle, but somebody who's not a soldier, seeing them, you know, seeing what it's like to experience those emotions on the edge of a fight, a life and death fight is really striking, you know? And again, that's what makes the Lord of the Rings so cool. Not just the movies, the stories in general, the books, It's like, yes, you have the awesome characters and this grandiose adventure and these set piece battles, but it's grounded, even though it's fantastic with dwarves and elves and dragons and wizards and all that kind of stuff, it's it's grounded in what it would really feel like, you know? And I really feel like that exchange between this little hobbit and this crazy wizard in this fantastic otherworldly place is so realistic. It really feels like you're on the edge of the battle with them you know of what they're experiencing
1: i totally agree i think it's very well put I, I when the green bolt comes out of the sky they're standing on the balcony and gandalf like puts his arm around him which i think is like really cool because you know it's scary you know and you see it. and i love the conversation that they have later on i think which is what when you're referencing when they're talking about the shire and you remember the shire and he's talking about he's basically telling him what it is to die yeah and it's really powerful and i remember being really entranced by it where I was like, you could see it. It's just a beautiful performance by the two actors, and him kind of accepting that he's gonna that they're gonna die. And and Gandalf has is like you said an almost demigod like character that that lives and dies, but this mortal halfling from far away is gonna meet his maker. And I often wonder if Gandalf's lying to him. You know, yeah, because you do he, wonder Gandalf about doesn't, that, right? Gandalf doesn't really know what it is to die per se, so. Not not the way that a, a mortal would die, right? But I, I I I do love the growing with bo- both mary and Pippin, like the just growing bravery. I think I love that this movie shines a bright light on them and makes them into characters, like real characters as individuals. They're separated. You would expect them to be together, but they're separated, and then they find their own way back to each other, which is really endearing. And I find I find their whole arc endearing, and you root for them when they come in at the end when Frodo's in bed and they jump on the bed with him it's it's so endearing it's it's cute and you want to know more almost about about their friendship and all of that yeah and true I I guess this brings me into a question that Brian Keith wrote into us he says um hello gentlemen I'm about to ask you guys the real question did you guys cry while watching this movie why is it yes And what part did you cry at? for me it's always when Aragorn tells the hobbits that they bow to no one it sends chills all around every time it makes me nearly ball my eyes out to me it's such a defining moment in the movies and for the hobbits as characters. It's a beautiful scene. Thanks for the amazing podcast and the many cherished laughs you guys gave me. Thank you for writing in, Brian. I, Thanks. It's Brian. funny because when I was talking about quotes, the, the, um, you bow to no one is, is probably my favorite quote. And that scene is, is quite amazing as well. There are, well, I, I would say, the last hour is pretty tear jerking in a lot it of is. different ways. But what, what do you feel like are the uh, really, truly emotional parts?
2: I'll tell you what, moment gets me. And it's even more powerful in the book. It always stood out to me I cried it's one of the one of the only times I remember crying in a book, although I'm sure there were other times, is when at the you know towards the end in the story, same as the film, where Pippin is frantically searching for Mary on the battlefield, and he finds him and he's alive, and he sort of rolls Mary over in the book he rolls Mary over and Mary asks he's like on his last legs and he asks he looks at Pippin and he says, "Are we dead?" <laughs> And I remember him saying that, and I was like, "That's it. I just lost it from there." And then you know, Pippin's reassuring him and everything. He's like, "Don't leave me, whatever." In the in the film, it's still very touching. He says, "You know," he says, "Are we, you know?" He says, "Are we? uh, Are you going to leave me or whatever?" And Pippin's like, "I'm not going to leave you." And he sits there and covers him with the blanket and everything like that, which is very emotional. But in the book, I don't remember. I don't remember crying in the film, but that part in the book. The description, sort of Pippin just being on his last legs of like just completely beside himself with worry for his friend. He can't find him on the battlefield. Just, I think he's assuming that he's going to find his body, you know, for some closure and he finds him alive and everything's very emotional in the book. And of course, again, like the Pippin and the Gandalf scene. Oh, dude, you know what else? What, I don't remember this being that emotional, but the scene where Pippin, Denethor asks Pippin to sing him the song. Right. And then Denethor is kind of feasting like a pig at a trough, like while Faramir is basically throwing, while his son's basically throwing his life away. And Pippin is singing that sort of sad, that lament, that song or whatever. Dude, it's so good. If you don't fall in love with Pippin at that moment for the complete, you know, the complete character arc that he had in that 20 minutes of like enjoying like his his pork and his pipe weed, and then all of a sudden just like saying to this mad king, and he's like, so sad for faramir and everything dude it's insane it's if you if you don't love pippin in this movie i just i just think you gotta we gotta get you on the ekg gotta see what that heart rate is <laughs>
1: <laughs> what, what do you think about this idea that i have speaking of you know the death of the sun and and um and faramir and boromir obviously in the whole arc with the boys over the three movies about this obsession and I noted it in my notes here that they're more obsessed. This society seems to be more obsessed with their ancestors than their progeny. Like what's going to, what already happened and what will happen to come. Do you think that there's some message in that? I, I, I'm kind of fascinated by that, about this idea that like they have, again, it's kind of visual. They go into the tombs and the tombs are in perfect shape, even though the society is crumbling. And they talk about the past over and over again, but never even plan or worry about the future. Do you think there's anything to that? I mean, wh- what does that talk to you? How does that talk to you as a literary device?
2: That's a great that's a great point. I, never, I didn't really think about that. I mean, I think about lineage in this world, and that's probably typical of a lot of fantasy where it's very important if you're a king or if you're a steward or if you're a prince, you want to hand down not only the familial heir or entitlements, but also you know, those roles of like inheriting a stewardship, inheriting a place, inheriting a castle, inheriting an empire, whatever type of thing, which seems to be a big thing. And it seems to be, again, we don't get enough of the dwarves, but with the elves and the men, certainly, legacy is a really important thing. And we see that across, you know, across the boards between the elves and the men, where it's like, even with Elrond Elrond and and the elves of Rivendell and, Caliborn and Galadriel and everything blah. it's like the elves sort of relinquishing their role in the world not just the places they inhabit but their role in the world and then also with the men it's like that's the that's the weird thing with Denethor it's like he lost the son who he favored but even though he browbeat his less favored son or the one that he sort of deemed too gentle or the, you know, the, the, the pupil of a wizard or whatever type of thing that he even, it was still important to him. It was unspoken thing that it was still important to him that he would exist in order to take on the, you know, the, the whole lineage of the whole Minas Tirith thing and being a steward of, of Gondor and all that. So, you know, that, that's an interesting thing. I think that the Hobbit speaks to that too. With the men at Rivertown at the end, with the battle with Smog and Smaug, Smaug, Smaug. And, that, and everything, but that's a great point. Man. That's another. That's another probably big theme. And and then you think of thing. You know what the other thing is? You think of characters too that aren't beholden to a lineage or entitlements or family names or specific places, like like the wizards, like Gandalf. It's like, and it makes you realize the importance and sort of the the wonder of a role like that it's like just doing something to be a hero there's nothing in it for there's nothing in it for a character like Gandalf he's simply there to help the cause of good right to help the cause of men with no promises of anything which is another in you know a, a nice contrast compared to the people that inhabit this world that are that are not magical I guess
1: yeah it's well put and you know in, in thinking about the times that made me sad i i would have to say that the and I, one scene i really want to talk to you about is the scene with the boat when they're leaving um middle earth and uh, i this scene i think is terribly sad and definitely you know got some tears out of me when i was watching it watching the four of them kind of have to say goodbye to we you know to at least one of you know to their to their main dude yeah what is the interpretation of this scene i'm I'm a little confused. are they dying? I don't really understand what what this is, I guess, and I don't really remember it from the book either yeah, you know what it's
2: a, the the whole pilgrimage of the elves leaving this world to go to the white shores, right That's the whole thing they're leaving crossing the ocean to like the way I always interpret it, and I could be wrong, and I'm sure we have people that that know the content better than us or know the whole backstory with it Certainly. but the way i always look at it is the elves sort of abandoning in this land for another place and the whole thing about a, a mere hobbit going with them you know with the company of like these enchanted immortal people and a wizard and like now this regular this regular person is able to go with them too like to put him to put him Frodo in such a prominent place. I love that ending. And I love the sadness of it. It's very realistic, you know, that, that the not only the is the fellowship breaking up, but also the four hobbits are now broken up. And, you know, especially that means a lot to Sam, especially even though he's getting married, even though he's gonna go back to the Shire and have children and have a life and Mary and Pippin are going to be there and stuff. The fact that Frodo's going, that's very sad. And you know it's also funny? I don't remember does Sam go with him in the book? I don't, you know, I have to read The Return of the King again. I really want to read it again because I don't remember it that well. But, you know, I think the Grey Havens or, you know, the, the El- you see it in the Two Towers. That's the whole thing with, Ar- the, you know, the elves are having their pilgrimage out and they're going to the boats. And Arwen, is Arwen going to be a part of that or is she going to stay and kind of forsake her right. immortality and just, you know, opt in for a mortal life, a tragic life. What she, she does. What she does. Which she does. She marries a, a, a Aragorn, but yeah, I think you know it's it's funny, man. I never saw it as like that is interesting. Like, is it some suicide pact or something? I I should probably know that, but I don't.
1: It just seems so. The way it was presented was, and I know that the 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 elves are supposed to be presented as very ethereal, natural, easy. There's actually a great scene when they're walking, like a procession is walking through the woods much earlier in the film, and it's like no noise being made. And I was just like, this is so cool. This is exactly That's super it. cool. But it seemed so bright, so dramatic, so like, I don't know what that was supposed to be. Why did, how did, let don't even say why, how did Frodo know that he was going to go? Because he did. He knew yeah. the entire time. What was the clue? To, did Gandalf tell him or something? And I, I do love the whole thing of the book kind of bookending the, the, the entire series where, Bilbo is working on the book in the beginning under a certain title and then it's finished at the end under the Lord of the Rings moniker by his nephew. So it's, it's, a, cool it's, a, yeah, it's very neat, but I guess I interpreted that I, and this is what I need to know more about. I know that this is the third age and there's the fourth age and the second age. And I don't know anything about those things, but I, I guess I interpreted that as more than just them, like an exodus, but that they were, that something supernatural was happening. But I guess I'm wrong. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm probably am wrong on that. Cuz it's not it would otherwise be like some sort of Jonestown. <laughs> you know. Yeah, pact. that's
2: what it you know that and it is almost fascinating to think there's a there's a crazy tragedy in that where it's like the elves just consider Middle-earth no longer worth being there for. You know, like, and also I always, I always thought Frodo going with them was him sort of like Bilbo leaving the Shire and holing up in Rivendell in his old, old age of like being, needing, because of what he went through with the ring and for being under the power of the ring for so long and how it changed him and how it sort of decayed him a little bit and broke him down that he needed to go to a place that, a place of healing you know, yeah, so the Convalescent or whatever. And, right. Ended up going to Rivendell, and then Frodo would end up going. So, I, I just looked this up real quick, and I don't know the validity yep. of this, but it says all of the ring bearers left Middle-earth. Gandalf, Galadriel, Elrond, Bilbo, and Frodo. Now, think of the other rings, too, right? You got to think of the other rings, like Gandalf claims to be the servant of the sacred fire and all that kind of stuff. There's other rings besides the one ring. And even Sam, after his children were grown and Rosie passed away. I don't remember this. The characters you mention are accompanying the elves, Galadriel, etc., back to Valinor, the Undying Lands cap- and Capitals, across the sea to the west.
1: Yeah, undying lands. The undying like, lands. So there is something, there has to be some religiosity to this. Right?
2: Yeah, it says the elves go to the undying lands because that marks an ending point to their life.
1: There you go. I mean, so- now, that's
2: very, that's very mysterious.
1: Yeah, this is what, and this is what I'm saying. It's the Walking Dead effect, where it's like I want to know more about everything else. Right? Yeah, it's true. It's, it's true. I don't know, care about I never you, really
2: Rick. Thought that much about it. You're right. I don't know.
1: I don't care about you, Rick, and your dumb fucking. What do they cop do there?
2: Denethor just lights them all on fire. That's yeah. That's it. He says wait.
1: But this might actually go into this, Dave. Um, Carlos Marulanda. Marulanda wrote in us. I'm sorry, hey, I Carlos. name. He says, "Hey guys, this is my first time writing, in. so I had to ask." This, since I think it would be thought-provoking. Many have concluded that Tolkien intended at the end of the books to deliver a sort of anti-industrial message in the name of preserving nature. It seemed rather heavy-handed with how the Shire was basically torn asunder by Sauron's conquest when they finally got back home. Do you think this message comes through at all in the final film or the trilogy in general? Do either of you think that this could have been done better in terms of getting the author's message across in this adaptation? I should mention that from what I gather online, Tolkien was a staunch anti-industrialist because of what he saw and how the unnatural destruction, especially to nature, seemed to him. Maybe one of you had heard about this and will have some insight. I will say that there is a strong, I mean, shit, man, it, it, it goes all the way into Victorian novels I mean, long before this. You think about Oliver Twist and shit. Yeah, Br- British writers were, I mean, not all of them, but were very anti industrialist. And I think a part of the, the two reasons of that with the first and second industrial revolutions was, was that I think Britain was at the center of the science and the tech. And was happening there quickly, it was happening very quickly. It's a small piece of land compared to a lot of other places. It got really dirty and sooty. Obviously, London was like a hellhole for a Great really long point. time, for many hundreds of years. Yeah. So I think that it would make sense that a British author would have that built into him, especially post-war. We have to look at the World War II era. Obviously, that's where all the, I guess, non-existent allegory comes from for, the, for the, the movies. But also they saw, or the books rather, but they also saw in europe firsthand just the destruction of nature remember world war One, nineteen fourteen 1914 and 1918 world war ii 1938 1939 to 1945 destroyed europe and they saw what happened and maybe what you're saying about the elves abandoning this land is almost a, in itself a sign to say like we're abandoning that like this this place is inherently in some way unclean. This place is beyond reproach. We've saved it, but we don't really want to be a part of it anymore. I don't know if that's a valid interpretation, but what do you think about um, the idea of this being kind of a, an environmental, an environmentalist book or an anti-industrialist book?
2: I could see that. And I think it is, you know, we talk about the allegories with, with war and civilization and uh, World War II specifically with the Nazis and the allies and everything that he was a little more you know a little more coy about but i know he was really naturalist is the right word right he was really into nature he really famously kind of disavowed like the television and technology in general he loved to live in the country he loved like the. he was very hobbit like you know he loved smoking his pipe and reading books and all that kind of thing i'm sure he you know They they had electricity and things like that. But yeah, I know he was very outspoken about that. And he was outspoken about the environment too and environmental causes way before that was in vogue, by the way. You know, that wasn't a big, that wasn't necessarily a big thing. I love your point about England being technological and industrial and being so tiny. Because you take that for granted. You think of a place like the United States, you could relegate industry to a place like Detroit or a quarter of a major metropolitan area or something. But in London you're you're dealing with much less physical and in England rather you're dealing with much less physical space. So, you know, you really that's something that's really so yeah, the ash and the dust and the soot and the the pollution and everything as a as a runoff of of an industry is a is a great point. And I, I'm sure that was why it was such a big issue or a big part of it was because it was so noticeable, you know it was such a big part of their lives once it once that once that took off, but I know Tolkien was very I listened to a great radio interview with him it was about an hour long earlier today, and it said a lot he he said a lot about the way he thinks about things it was really fascinating, his stances on things he didn't talk about this specifically, but the way he named characters and the way he vetted the names of characters and had that they had to the feel right and you know, sort of envisioning characters like Faramir, where they just kind of wrote them, wrote themselves as they went along, and the fact that he would eventually wed with Eowyn wasn't really kind of in the built-in trajectory, but it eventually ended up happening in the writing. And the way he thought, like there was no way he could write a story like this without drawing a very complicated map first. Like he was very much like this would have not been, this would have wouldn't have worked if I didn't draw this crazy intricate map of this world first like i really needed that as so it was really fascinating very telling
0: yeah you know and it doesn't very seem visual. like he,
2: he was afraid to talk about his craft at all
1: yeah I, i'm curious to know more about him like i don't i don't know much about him i was reading a little bit about him being surprised by the success of the books i think that he made an enormous amount of money from them sure and obviously as we've talked about ad nauseum is just revitalized where it really you know was the speaking of progenitors the 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 creator of what we would know as fantasy i think today so it's natural i think for us to want to look for deeper meanings in what he's saying and i think that i'm so into that we talked a lot about it when we discussed mad men which i think is a very symbolic show yeah and certainly in my own games there's a lot of symbolism and i write like that and i i dig writing like that so i don't know if i'm seeking it out where it might not be but I feel like at the very least, you can see a naturalist, that's a great word for it, a naturalist's message yeah, in all things here. So even if you don't believe in the World War II allegory, and and you might not, and, and it doesn't seem like it was intended or whatever, even though it, it's quite fun to put that in there, it reminds me a lot of the examination of The Shining, the film, not the book, in that, people see much in that movie and i think some of it is there and i think most of it isn't and it's fun to figure out what is what and there's like entire documentaries dedicated to that oh so maybe we so crazy it's awesome but maybe we can maybe we can look at it through that lens too where maybe like you said he was maybe being a little coy also maybe it's a little bit of an honest thing because when you when you when people go back and interpret like things i've written where they're like oh i interpret it this way i'm like oh that's actually more clever than what i even (laughs) <laughs> thought about so you know you got to give them some credit for um for not wanting to take credit for other people's ideas because if someone was like oh this is a world war ii uh, you know allegory because of this this and this i'd be oh yeah oh yeah, yeah that's right well kyle let me ask yeah. you real quick when oh, you please.
2: when somebody questions your writing you know say i see this in it and is this correct do you more find yourself surprised by it or do you go in and introspectively say maybe i didn't intend it You know, outwardly, but maybe it kind of crept its, you know, its way in from my psyche type thing. Do you ever find that happens where maybe it is possible that your subconscious threw that in?
1: It could be. I think what my bigger thing associated with that about getting feedback about fiction for the first time that I'm putting out into the world is that I'm realizing that because I've done it so many times. My um my great example is that like my interpretation of the end of The Last of Us is categorically wrong in association with what neil Druckmann had intended i know that for a fact because he told me but it's still my right to have agency over the creation as the consumer yeah and what i'm realizing about putting stuff out there is that my interpretation like i could scream from the hilltops what my interpretation or like what my intent was right twin breaker is an anti-war game that's okay. what the idea is it's supposed to be an anti-war game and any other interpretation of that is wrong but that's you're right to make that interpretation and maybe it's not wrong Sure, and that's almost what's so fun about putting things into the wild and I'm sure you feel that way about your own art too is the things that people find or draw out of it that you had never even intended and that's I think the beauty of the depth of Tolkien is that these books give you so much depth it's not wordiness for wordiness's sake I, I think it's different than George Martin I think it's even different than authors I really like like Ayn Rand in the sense that it's just it doesn't seem to be verbose for verbosity's sake but rather uses its word count very cleverly in such a way that it establishes a baseline story that can then be interpreted in all of these very meaningful and i think valid ways whether sure. or not he, he died in 1973 he's long gone he, Wow. It's almost 50 years it's not like he's gonna ever come back and say like well i didn't mean it you know and also <laughs> it's fun to inter- not that i have done it with this but it's fun to interpret things through the lens of things that have happened afterwards too that he couldn't have possibly known right and and how you know almost like a uh, you no know, quatrains right where it's like it's about hitler's death and shit well you can like kind of take this great fantasy and this great writing and really fix fit it and mold it in such a way that it speaks to whatever you want it to and i think that that's it's biblical it's like it's 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 the same thing it's it's it, that's what's great lit that's great literature invokes that stuff where you almost feel like yeah of course that's what it means of sure. course because you're so positive because that's the way it made you feel and I think that this is unique in that sense.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, and and you're right. Any work of art, fiction, visual art, even music, like it's not you create it, you put it out in the world and it becomes, you know, it becomes the viewer, the viewers. It becomes partially that person's, you know, the recipient's own thing. It's not yours anymore. It's not the artist's anymore. It's it's shared now. So interpretation is kind of part of the fun. You
1: know? It is. And, and also relinquishing that control in yes. some way. I know some people I think I think actually not Tolkien. Uh, Martin is one of those people where he's like totally anti we've discussed this in the past in other um, ways but anti fanfic and I am too like I think that fanfiction is pretty lame actually it's like why don't you just if you have this these writing chops go make your own characters, do something
2: yeah yeah yeah. I always found it very weird especially now
1: but from an interpretive point of view and through the lens in which you read or watch something or listen to it or whatever of course these things are going to be open to interpretation that's that's why people love literature and by the way And I said earlier, it's biblical. I mean, people still interpret the Bible in all sorts of different ways. Somehow you get the prosperity gospel out of something that was written. Not that that's right or wrong, but you get something like the prosperity gospel out of something written 1900, you know, 1950 years ago or something. Right. You know, so it's just very interesting from that respect. But Dave, I wanted to ask you this as we begin to wrap things up. We mentioned the many endings. The movie seems like it's ending from the very beginning. (laughs) Dylan Lockyer wrote in and said, hey, Colin and Dagan, we all know the joke about Return of the King having a million endings. Which of them sticks with you the most? My personal favorite is the fellowship reuniting when Frodo wakes up to really tie us back to the first movie. I even love Gandalf's crazy old man laugh. Love you both, (laughs) and thank you for being such a positive force in my life. Thank you, Dylan, for writing in. Appreciate you. Thank you. you. So, Dick, out of all these endings, I think the movie is in perpetual ending mode. It definitely is. it actually, in the extended version, I'm like, oh my God. Especially because there are these wipes. I don't know if they're from the original cuts or whatever, but there are these certain wipes and segues where it's like, this was the end. And then this was the end and then because it just it lingers too long where you're expecting the credits to pop up or like you're directed by so I I will say that my favorite ending I do like when they all reunite in the room Sam comes in last he's got that really great wistful look on his face but I also love the crowning of Aragorn I'm confused by why Gimli is there and I actually have a question as to why where are the dwarves yeah where are the dwarves I like, where are they? I mean, we go to Minas Tirith <laughs> or not Minas Tirith. No, that's right. That's the underground. No. What's the underground, the underground city Mo- they go to? Moria. Moria. Fellowship. Yeah. The Mines of Moria. That's right. Yeah. And we, and we know that they, they, they were killed or vanquished at some point there. Yeah. That, but that, that just drew, that just drew question into me where it's like, where? And I was actually like, so I'm so lost with Fellowship or with um, Return of the King at this point, both the film and the book, like what actually happens where I'm like, did the dwarves show up? Like as I was watching it, I'm like, do they come into this battle and stuff? So, and obviously, as it went on, I'm like, no, that doesn't happen. And then it just it, so I like that ending because it has the cool quote with my friends, "You bow to no one," which is a great quote. Sure. Also, it has it's the fulfillment of the return of the king, and you know the the, the proper noun, return of the king, and it, <laughs> it it so it ties up that loose end and it shows us that there's this incredible. Respect for these four halflings that found themselves in this extraordinary journey and did the right thing. And so I I like, and that I think is a really sad and somber moment in its own way. What of the uh, endings, the 17,000 endings of the movie, did you enjoy the most?
2: (laughs) It really does end over and over again. It's so funny when the sentiment is like nearly unanimous with viewers, you know, by the hundreds of thousands. Like everybody's like, yeah, it just keeps ending. It's so funny. It seems like they just couldn't bear to stick with one ending. They had to end, ended it a million different ways. And I don't remember if the book felt like that too. I think a big part of that though, is that you have this epic battle in the first, easily in the first quarter of the movie. So you have this epic thing and it just feels like it should already be over. I don't think that helps, you know, where that, you know, they, there's a lot that goes on after that battle, after that initial battle. But for me, I love the ending. I think really one of the most satisfying things of the ending is the reunion in Rivendell, specifically of the four hobbits. I love seeing Bilbo too. I love Ian Holm repri- reprising his role as, as Bilbo. I, I, I think he's a great actor.
1: Does it make but, you wonder what order they filmed all this in? By the way, I was thinking yeah. That's
2: that. the thing too. Like they could have right. a lot of fun in the editing room with this because there's really no nothing's really has any bearing sequentially. So you could just kind of mix and match.
1: Yeah. Well, I was know? thinking when they were going back into the Shire at the end, like the four Hobbit, yeah. I was like, I bet you they filmed that at the same time they built, they filmed fellowship. And I was thinking of the same thing with Bilbo, where I'm like, I bet you they filmed all this.
2: When yeah, had, you
1: know they, if had they had him the on set. So they could send him away. You know that's God, that's, that's just productive. I was just I don't know that I don't know any of that. I was just thinking about that constantly as I was watching the movie. Anyway, yeah, it does
2: see, it does give you those feelings. That would be very smart if they did that. But yeah, I love I love the Four Hobbits specifically. You know that that reunion because that's such a great payoff. They they've been away from each other since the beginning of the you know since the end of the first film, right? They went through the mines of Moria and then after that with the whole thing with Barlimier. And the battle and then Sam and, you know, Frodo trying to leave Sam and then Sam almost drowning. And then so the hobbits have been split over the course of like these films. So it was nice to see them. Thank God they all lived to
1: get back together. <laughs> that would be so tragic if you know. It, it. Die. It, it, yeah, it would, it would be awful. I, I love that. You know, I love the whole thing being about in, in my interpretation, not the whole thing being about, but part of it is like the valor and bravery of these very unusual passive creatures that didn't expect to find themselves in this situation but conducted themselves with the up, ended up conducting themselves with the utmost bravery when the world needed them most and i think that that scene with aragon bowing represents their understanding that no matter all of the ulterior things that happen in which facilitated them not getting captured at every turn and that the fellowship themselves kind of propelled them and gave them inertia to go towards Mordor, that these unusual creatures were trusted with this incredible, especially Sam and, and Frodo and trusted with this incredible task, which they fulfilled. They really did it. And it's a, uh, and that leads into my other favorite ending, which is certainly just being at Mount doom and feeling like, you know, I know what happens. Like we, we know that he gets his finger bit off and he fights with, Gollum, and we kind of have the full circle thing where you know Sam was right about Gollum the entire time, and the bread and all the things that happened to them with the crumbs and everything earlier on. But I remember wh- I was I, even as I was watching, it, even as I know what happens, I'm like, just drop the fuck. The-. You know, like it's it's one of those it's one of those endings where you like you're just like drop the ring, drop Do it, and you want it to go like a different way. You know, it's like just drop the ring. <laughs> And you can feel it in Sam saying, "Like, what are you doing? Like, right, right, right. We have been crawling on hands and knees to get here for fucking thirteen months. Drop the ring in the lava. (laughs) Yep. So I feel like that end, that end, really, like, was palpable in a way. Absolutely.
2: Oh my god, such tension. And it makes me, you, you know, you saying that makes me realize: was Sam really the one? Should he been the the agent? You know, should he have been the vessel for delivering the ring? Like, was he made of even sterner stuff than Frodo? Now, Frodo did it out of love for Bilbo, but Sam would have been, I think Sam might have been a better vehicle for the ring. I think he was, I think he was even less corruptible than Frodo. Now, had Sam been the ring bearer from the beginning, he might have been just as eaten away by it as Frodo, but I'm not sure about that. Sam's. Sam's got something, man. He's just got that. He's got. And that. He had
1: the ring for a while,
2: he, and, and that's true. He carried it and Frodo, right? Like and a ca- sack and of he, he, I can't
1: carry the ring, but he's, he can carry Frodo. So
2: <laughs> he—I don't know. He's just got those. He's got those Derek Jeter-like qualities. You can't even like really describe them. They're just, you know, he's just good.
1: Uh, a couple more things, Dave. I just wanted to bring up before we go. I wanted to kick it over to you to see, see if we didn't touch on anything you wanted to talk about. Sure. Just to, as I'm going through my notes, things that didn't come up. The quote, all has turned to vain ambition, is an amazing quote. Great quote. Love that quote. It can be used every day in a lot of different... There's also a quote. I don't know who wrote said it. I think it's one of the hobbits. There's no more stars. Is it time? I think Pippin says that to, to Gandalf. I'm trying to think. When they're on the balcony and he says, there's no more stars. Is it time? Indicating that it's about to end. Everything's about to end. That's so cool. Which I love as well. Foreboding. I love that the blade, the, um, they reforged the broken blade, and I think it, it represented kind of the passing of the torch from the elf to the human, this, this weapon being necessary to court kingly um, respect. Obviously, without the, without the welded blade, we would have never gotten to the ghost characters that need to right. be redeemed and all of that. They would have never recognized Aragorn as king and all of that. So there's, you know, the, the quote of putting aside the ranger, I think, is a really, is a really cool thing and i did also dig the lighting of the various torches like the signal lights although oh my it's, god I love it's that. although it's pretty shoddy tech like cg work if you look at it because they linger on it for so long some of the shots where the camera is has to turn i guess they're in a helicopter it's probably not it's too early for drones but they're probably in a helicopter in the turning and so the flame has to turn with the camera and it just looks totally off so i
2: gotta watch that
1: yeah you can that's see that's a that. good eye otherwise i think i i've commented on pretty much everything i've wanted to say is there anything that we didn't touch on Dave, that you wanted to talk about well i love you talk about aragorn needing that token needing that reforged
2: sword in order to command the undead armies very very video game ask first it's, you got yeah, go the whole thing the is sword. very video game ask it's all right it's such a yeah. video game yeah. you know it's so cool had such, I, went, this had such I wonder enormous, where it came
1: from, you know, like I wonder where video games came from. It's like, exactly. I you, mean, it, this it, had it, such
2: an enormous impact. There would be no current video. Video games would have looked very different without Tolkien, you know. I agree. Such, I totally agree. Such an enormous, it, it's just like Star Wars and science fiction or even Star Trek and science fiction, like without those things, you know, that, that, those genres would look so different, you know, which yeah. is, which is just amazing. I mean, there's, we, we did a pretty good job of covering everything we did. Let's see. Yeah, I'm looking at all the characters. We got to talk about. We got to talk about everybody there. Yeah, I'm satisfied on my end. Yeah, I mean that was it was fun. You really, I enjoyed watching the entire trilogy again. And and you're right, we did them in pretty close proximity. We probably did the entire trilogy within the last three months. I would say.
1: Yeah, not even I would say
2: right. Not even, but. Return of the King was really, really extra enjoyable for me. And I think that says a lot because the length is, is, could be pretty off-putting, you know, for a, a tired, busy adult, we're, we're all tired, we're all busy with our careers and families and jobs and everything.
1: I have to say, when I was, when I, when you told me that, I was like, oh man, you know, I know it's like, because oh, I think no. I was coming off of the two towers where I was like, ah, eh, cause the fellowship had me really high. And then yeah. the two towers was a little bit of a lull for me. And then so, but return is better than both of them. So. I, I think agree that four and a half hours was, n- was pretty brisk. All the pretty
2: considered. easy breezy. Yeah. I mean, that's saying a lot and you know, not just sitting there to watch it, but <clears throat> you know, Kyle, when you do, and a lot of you guys know out there too, that do podcasts, like it's also like remembering that amount of content to talk about, like could be an off-putting notion. It's like, Oh man, I got to remember all this. And like, by the time I get three hours in, I'm going to forget the first hour, but this movie just makes it really easy, you know? And I know we know, we know this stuff a little bit already, but, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it this week. It was great.
1: Yeah, me too. And so everyone can go back and listen to those or our three episodes now in sequence if they'd like. And I agree. It It's I don't like doing podcasts where it's like, you know, this ha- I've said this many times, but this happened. Then this happened. Then this. Right, happened. Right. I don't want to examine anything like Recap. that. I think it's boring rather than I want to just go to what is most gravitational in the product at hand. It doesn't have to be a sequential retelling of the story or. The, we don't have to discuss every actor's performance and it's you know obviously we didn't bring up the oscars really at all this movie is like one of the most winningest movies in, in oscar history but i don't really th- i don't care about any of that one if you're just watching that's a, cool but yes yeah. i like i'm getting more comfortable with knockback the longer we go on where i'm like this is just us reflecting on and what i keep saying is is our podcasts are companion pieces to the fiction sure or whatever that is out there that we're doing as opposed to like going and saying like where is the you know why didn't you talk about indiana jones's entire plot first it's like well i'm not not going to do that so you don't have
2: to do that it's kind of the you got to kind of take the components that are the most important to us you know
1: that's exactly because you could
2: talk about it ad nauseum for hours and upon hours and take every single every single component but it's more fun to talk about the stuff that's the most you know that's the closest to our hearts or the stuff that we want to get out there because that's the most genuine conversation my friend i agree Dave. you know what i mean
1: well i kick it over to you for a dad joke as we okay i got a good Ziana one out of here i
2: gotta say big thank you to our boy troy miller on i forgot if we talked on instagram or twitter but i think it's twitter he sent me this dad joke tell you man this dad joke racket it is turning into a racket you know yeah they're just good. making it easy for me
1: to racket where no money is being made but it's a no racket money on at those. all yeah
2: that ain't working That's the way to do it. Money (laughs) for nothing
1: nothing, and your your chicks for free. free. (laughs) (laughs) That ain't working. That's the way to do it. I like like the real earnest part. You get the guitar and the MTV.
2: So good. (laughs) Look look at that. that. (laughs)
1: Dude, Dire Straits rules. Sorry, go on with the dad joke. All right, Kyle.
2: Every morning I walk outside and I get hit by the same bike. Every morning, it's a vicious cycle. (laughs) It's pretty good. (laughs) Not bad. Yeah, that's not bad at all. I think that came through last night. I'm like, I'm
1: using it, (laughs) and then I always threaten not to give credit, but I always do.
0: (laughs) That's the way you do it.
1: Yeah, I, I love. I I, now I have dire straits in my head. You know, because I love when he's like, that ain't working, and then they have the little harmony. I think it's in the second verse where he's like,
0: That's the way you do it.
1: The other guy like, (laughs) and then he just like disappears. (laughs) An early
2: early cg video i think the entire video is cg i don't think there's even footage of the band or anything
1: it's like i think they watch the band on the tv okay that's in you okay, know what i mean like right. they're, they're in like right. the chairs and they're watching the band play god
2: early compositing talking about mean, how much that, how much did that the...
1: cost i wonder for god, them to do i'd like to know who
2: did it that was I'm even sure you can find pixar. that that's an
1: iconic music video i'm sure there's a lot of information on that
2: i wonder who did that pixar was doing commercials at that time
1: i, I feel like we would know there. if that was pixar
2: Yeah. They did like the early Listerine commercial that, that oh
1: <laughs> <laughs> right, Dave. Well, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Good appreciate to see all you. of you it out there. Fun. Yeah, good to see you as well. Thank you all out there for your love, kindness, and support of our show. Could not do it without you. Remember, support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash last standard. I almost said like Colin's last stand. It's not that anymore. Also, you can go on <laughs> iTunes, YouTube, et cetera, support us there. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, et cetera. Whatever you can do, we appreciate it. We'll see you next time from more Knockback. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye. Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC, and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. The show was conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty. Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman, and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. Andrew Morgan, Gregory Slavinsky, Steven Nieder, Ross Marenka, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Jerome Ferreira, SLVFMA, FMA, Jorge Palomino, Daniel D'Amour, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, George Ghazi, Christian Rodriguez, Jod Rita, Kurt M. Gillenberg, Patrick Skipper, Brian Hernandez-Espinoza, Anthony Fuentes, Sweaty Mitt, John Russell, Jordan Andow, Maverick Mazel, Chris Kelly, Andrew Meister, Evaristo One, Dustin Graff, Israel Pena, Peyton Stone, Roberto, Josh Howland-Rui, Corbin Dallas, Tyler Watkins, Troilus True, Dan Root, Evan Barr, Randall Holsey, Robbie Nauman, Nuke Dukem, Jimmy Deanman, William Holbert, Dr. Stump, Josh Godfrey, Ike Souza, Vornak, Betty Ann Moriarty, Callan Lennon, Daniel Johnson, H-Trons, Caleb Sittler, an unofficial controller podcast, Ethan Davies, Jay Getter, Jeff Mercado, Galja, Of Fortuna, Boots, Tyler Brown, Megadet, Gavin Newland, Lockmort, Saul Balcazar, Zach Parsley, Raul Melendez, Eric Harden, Alex Bolton, Matt Martin, Kinnamz, Joseph Baker, Rodney Coleman, Chris Moore, Rinsler 526, Ben B, TB Lightning, Anti Kinnanen, Taylor Barkley, Will Hernandez. Chris Galvin, Mason Cadillac, Ollie Fritz, Evan Dalton, Chris Buston, Zach Allen, George Anthony Nunez, Kyle Hagel, Christopher, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naaman, Ryan R. Kittredge, Toby Ryland, Michael S., David Bostick, D.B. Cooper, Cody Bradbury, Tom Cargill, Richter 86, Steve Hodge, Hofeldian, Ian Bravo, Noah J. Stevens, Barrett Boswell, Andrew Parker, Christopher Devayo, Chris Morton, Kevin Komaki, Mark Liberto, Johnny Waffles, Roto 24, Blake Israel, Jonathan Coates, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Brian Chan, Jay, Organic Produce, Travis Archuleta, Shane St. Pierre, Carlos Algarit, Richard Hebert III, Miranda Grubba, Donnie Nolan, Josh Yeager, Turbo Makes Games, Matthew Cooper, Dan Parsons, Martin Beck, Gavin, Brian Watkins, Joe Andrichek, Nathan R., Joe McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Brody Rainey, Jacob Bell, Dennis Yuzel, David Everett, Eric Finkenbeiner, Lou and Ray Loper, Dylan Burns, William, Jason Lusky, Malachi Wall, Zach Binkley, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Yusuf, Anton K., Alan Trembley, Tyler Bello, Ryan T. Mandel, Tony Zuniga, Sean Battershall, Max Lazos, Robbie Hensley, Alex Cabrera, Lennon Brixy, Kyle Thomas, James Kinslow III, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vazquez, Adam Kiniston, William O'Carroll, Jesper Jansen, Phil Crone, Throw7, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, David Mann, Petro Rose, Lockmore, Geo Corsi, Gerald Pennington, Justin Wagaman, Paul Joyce, Chad Lewis, Matt Hazelbaker, Todd Paxton, Enrique Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Shane Rayum, Spencer Brand, Don Lee, John Cordero, Keith A. Lewis, Marius Scarson Peterson, Tyler Harris, Matthew Perdue, Patrick Harper, Mad Mock Media, Jonathan Rice, and Casual Misfits Gaming.